Hello, Sid. Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm good. I gotta say, you have uh, fantastic. I love your music, man. This is this is good stuff. Yeah, Carl. <laughs> Did you like the revolution? <laughs> uh, you, you, your uh, your teenage years would have been a great decade for music, for sure. You're not kidding, especially Maxwell Silver Hammond. <laughs> um, what was your favorite live band you've ever seen? Jefferson Airplane. Jefferson. Okay, I can't. Uh, what? Give me your second favorite. Second favorite, Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> it was always. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to play them next time then. Oh yeah, Alice in Wonderland uh, was was excellent. So uh, Santana, Santana, yeah, Santana. That too. so good. Yeah, that band. Um, how was your week? Sid, how was your week? Uh, week's been good. Week's been good. I've been uh, working away as always, and, and I'm getting ready to go down to the States. I'm going to uh, visit with a couple of geologists. I'm looking at a gold project, and I'm going to be seeing my daughter in L.A. So okay. I'm looking forward to it. So you will not be available next Sunday. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, next Sunday I'm on the road, but uh, after, but the Sunday after I think we'll have another uh, another review of what's going on. There's so many things happening, and this, it's uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about. Awesome. Well, that uh, your schedule lines up with mine. I, I'm going to be traveling as well. I uh, leave on Friday. I'll be back. I think the following Thursday. So. Uh, for our audience, we will be taking a Sunday off, which means there's lots of time for Sid and I to uh, find some new things to discuss. But um, we might as well just get right to it. We're into part two of our uh, of our discuss- discussion here, Sid, and uh, right. of our series, The End of Money as We Knew It, part two, Bitcoin, gold, and, and the metals. So, you know, where do you want to start? You want to uh, go over your slides? Sure, sure. I think that makes sense. Okay. Now, one thing I wanted to uh, mention was that Carl and I have known each other for a little while, and I've been uh, with kind of stuff for for a long time. And uh, the way we've been starting is to talk about setting up uh, a way of thinking about money and a way of thinking about thinking. And that's why uh, the first few sessions have been pretty uh, broad and very uh, maybe theoretical. But uh, once we've gone through the basic ways of thinking about it, which is going to be over, I think tonight's going to be a key night. We, we would have covered a, a large part of it. Then I think we're going to start talking about specifics. But but my personal goal had been, if you can't come up, if you haven't got a specific model, a specific language, a way of thinking about things, uh, then what happens is that you, you just sound like Kramer or you sound like CNN or you sound like another talking head. And also, uh, over time, I'd like to, my personal goal would be to, to, to develop an interaction with, with people that call in and to have sort of a dialogue, which would be fantastic, where it goes both ways. Uh, we're also trying to do something here, which is totally unique in the world. We don't want to replicate what anybody else is doing. We want to put something together very useful and integrated. Uh, and that's sort of what we're working on. So in summary, where this whole series is going to is about how to think about money, the big picture. And that involves timing, short time, short term, medium term, long term, and intergenerational. So timing from months to first generation, second generation. Then how to think about risk, short, medium, long, generational. And then, how, then what are the processes of thinking? When you talk to people, or if you read Cointelegraph on Bitcoin, or if you're on CNN, or if you're on Twitter, if you listen to Warren 
Buffett or Dalio or Soros or all kinds of other people, you know, some people talk about fundamentals, which is good. Some people talk about macro, what they call macro, interest rates, government policy, etc. Some people talk about technicals, but none of them really talk about what's beyond that. Uh, And what we're trying to do here is put it all together in in a structure that when we're talking about specific investments, whether it's a junior gold company or whether it's uh, McDonald's or whether it's artificial intelligence or Bitcoin or Ethereum or any crypto, it comes from a certain perspective that helps you put it together. That's where we're going uh, tonight. And that's maybe a bit more. But then we'll have the background established when we talk about specifics from now on moving forward. The other thing that we'd like to talk about is real intelligence. You hear a lot about artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. To me, there's two kinds of artificial intelligence. There's carbon-based and there's silicon-based. Carbon-based is human beings who don't really think. That's artificial intelligence. Silicon-based is, you know, computers. Um, I personally don't think AI is going to cause a problem for anybody, any carbon-based unit, i.e. human beings who actually think, because we've been having technology, you know, pretending they're going to eliminate human beings for like 5,000 years. This is happened before. Most recent example was the agricultural revolution. 99% of people used to be in farming. Now it's like 1%. So all those jobs got eliminated, but there's still lots of stuff to go on. Uh, So that's what we're putting together. So I think I'll start with the first slide. Any comments or questions, Carl, uh, at this point? No comments. Uh, It is interesting you mentioned McDonald's, though, as I think they just announced some layoffs or something. That's right. That's right. Okay. Their uh, labor is too troublesome for them, so they want to go all automated. Right. <laughs> you know, which is fine. Uh, that's been going on for a long time, as mentioned. And just to reiterate, while today we're going to cover a lot of material, it's going to be, you know, uh, academic, talking, lecturing, whatever, but I'm trying to get some interaction as well. So if there's questions, you know, I'll talk, we're talking to Carl, but we're setting, this is the third session, we're setting the framework for future sessions on specific ideas and specific events. So we don't come across like, you know, Kramer, who's sort of funny and humorous, but what do you really get out of it? Or, uh, you know, Zakaria, who talks about U.S. Dollar, dollars right now at CNN, but what do you really get out of that? And if you're going to talk about, you know, Donald Trump and his latest, uh, you know, situations, that's fine. But what do we really get out of that? So that's where we're going. Okay, first slide is the one with the gentleman on it, Jesse Livermore, et cetera. Is that slide out there, Carl? Yeah, that slides in the nest. Yep. Okay. Now, I've been focusing a lot on technical analysis, which means price action, trying to establish investing from the perspective of what does the price or the price movement of a stock or real estate or Bitcoin tell you? And there's a deep reason for that, a few deep reasons. The first reason is that prices are always changing, and therefore you have to be able to deal with prices. You know, fundamental economic thinking, as it used to be and as it still is, but it's evolving, was about equilibrium. What what should the price be? Well, that, that question has been proven over again multiple times. It doesn't make sense. You never really quite know what a price should be, but you know if it's moving. And that's really what people want to know. Is the price of what they hold higher now than it used to be? And that's what they, you know, that's what's really important. Now, the gentleman on that slide, there's one, two, three, four, five gentlemen and these are people you may want to investigate. And these are people that I, that really I thought were very, very enlightening. And just to review, Jesse Livermore, great book, How to Trade in Stocks. I'd recommend, uh, you know, people get it. That specific book. It's the only book he ever wrote. It's not the humorous, romantic, uh, 
books written about him in the third person. It's actually his book, How to Trade in Stock, which he wrote towards the end of his life. That man is the most successful speculator or investor in public stocks there ever were in 5,000 years. And he was the greatest trader there ever was. And he was basically uh, an early precursor of what technical analysis really is. It's really something important to read. And he's got a 16 or 17 page chart at the back of his book where he tracks through exactly how he made his decisions, looking at two stocks that used to be very famous, U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel. I personally had those charts printed up. I invented my own charts. I copied them. And I went through it line by line, trying to figure out what he was actually talking about, because I couldn't quite figure it out. But subsequently, I did with the help of other people. So that's a good book. The second phenomenal book there, if you're going to get into technical analysis or price action, and the funny thing is that when you listen to the popular press, when you're on Twitter and you listen to what people advise, when you read technical newsletters or get advice from your, you know, brokers or whatever, they're really talking about price movement. How many people really understand or talk about fundamentals? How many people really understand and talk about inflation, interest rates, deflation, what it really means? Nobody. But that's what we're trying to do in this series. Dalio sort of does, but we're going to really try to get into it over time. That's a personal goal of mine. Bob Prachter does a phenomenal job describing how what price action really is in the real world. So I highly recommend that book. Now, there's another character called Glenn Neely. Uh, uh, by the way, Jesse Livermore died in 1940. Practice is still around. He was at Merrill Lynch when I was at Merrill Lynch a long time ago. And he's got a great website. and Does all kinds of stuff. You can check his website. So he's got two of them, actually. One's called the Elliott Wave and the other's called uh, Socionomics. Glenn Neely, uh, Mastering Elliott Wave. Great book. He's got a website. He, he, he does all kinds of stuff. Phenomenal guy if you really get into, if you want to be a professional trader, uh, he's also a phenomenal guy. Uh, next is the guy who started it all, Ralph Nelson Elliott. We all talk about Elliott wave theory, right, uh, Carl? Uh, yeah, I might say most people that are serious in the trading and investing are familiar. Not everybody, yeah. though. He invented it, and that's his book. And you you can get it from, uh, it's been reprinted. There's, he did two books. He did the wave theory, and then he did Nature's Law. The Wave Theory was 1938. Nature's Law was 1942. Uh, I've studied practice book inside and out. I've studied Jesse Livermore inside and out. Neely, I'm just getting into Nature's Law, etc. I'm working through it again. When you read uh, about theories or models, one thing I have personally found is that unless you go back and read the original books, the original sources, the original guide, you're getting a watered-down, screwed-up, propagandized, silly version of what the original greats really did. So so you've got to go back to the originals if you're interested. And ultimately, if you really want to manage, uh, unless you're just, you're born naturally very smart on this, or unless you come from a family or a culture where they're really smart on this stuff, you have to study it on your own. And these guys are great. Nelson was phenomenal. Finally, there's a guy called Benoit Mandelbrot. I'm not sure how many people know much about fractals, or it's been, you know, it's it's a common term. Uh, this guy was a mathematician, an economist, a computer expert, PhD. He wrote a book, and the book is right there. It's called The Misbehavior of Markets, where he has basically proven why modern finance theory uh, makes about zero sense. As a matter of fact, it makes probably negative sense. I, I'm not going to get into it t- t- you know, tonight, etc., but fantastic guy. He basically says, look, movements 
of prices, just like everything else is cyclical. They actually move in fractals. And, and in fact, Elliott Wave Theory, Bob Practice says the same thing. And when I, I'll talk a bit about Elliott Wave on that bottom chart on the right in that slide. And as to why it's very important to basically have a practical um, understanding of fractals. Um, can I carry on? Please. please. Okay. All right. And a uh, friend of mine just sent me a note. He said, uh, turn off the mic. So let me, um, what do I do here now? Let me see. No, you're, you're okay. Sir. Am, I, am I okay? Yeah, I sent you that when I was playing the music. When you first came on and oh. there was a little intro, your mic was still on. But you're okay. okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks okay. a lot. Okay, um, so 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 Mandelbrot is uh, is uh, just you know what he's got various books. I have them all. He's written tons of papers, but the the guy was a genius and he was a really 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 nice man. And he says basically the same thing Elliot says and Practor says. So you get all these really nice gentlemen who are really smart and want to help out, saying the same kinds of things. It's very very interesting. Now I'm going to talk a bit about uh, fractals. And uh, before I do that, um, let me just talk a bit about money, and then we're going to go on to that slide, uh, the slide with the fractals in it, okay? Now, um, the core concepts that, that, that I've worked on for years to figure out is, is one, what is money really? Um, and the second concept is, what is inflation and what is deflation? And what is, uh, therefore, <laughs> those are the main things that caused the macro economy to, to go up and down and get screwed up. So what I should say about, about money is this. In theory, money should just be an accounting measure. You know, uh, an apple, so many apples are worth, so, is, are worth a car, or so many apples is, is worth an education, or two cars is worth a house. That's all money should be. And if that was the case, we'd be living in a real economy with real things and people would not get confused by money having a value by itself. And it's that situation which causes inflation, deflation, business cycles, etc. It, it's pretty amazing. Um, and you can hear me, right, Carl? Uh, this sounds okay? Yep, you're good. Okay, okay. So, um, um, and by the way, a friend of mine just sent me a note about G Jim Simmons. Uh, I've, I've got the very book, uh, 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 Mark. <laughs> So, but uh, we'll get, we'll get to, to Simmons soon. And we're going to get to, you know, the PhDs who, who, you know, beat the world at poker and, and there, you just don't hear about it in the school or in the popular press, but we're going to talk about this stuff because it's all relevant. In ancient Egypt, do you know what money was originally in the first 2000 years, Carl? You're going to have to enlighten me. Rice and meat. That was money. The barter so, system. Well, that's the funny thing. The modern man calls it the barter system. But in fact, it wasn't. They exchanged rice and they exchanged meat for other things. So it was actually a real thing that was used and was something they could produce as required. It took ongoing effort. And therefore, they didn't have inflation and didn't have deflation. Unless, of course, there was a, a period of uh, famine where there was bad weather and you couldn't grow the stuff. But in that world, things sort of made sense. People had a real sense for exchanging things of value, things you could eat, live in, etc., for other things of value. Now, over time, what happened is, is the society got um, changed somewhat and as it became less religious, less spiritual, and more what I would call secular is 
Guess what became money? Uh, gold, silver, and copper. And that's where the problem started. And, of course, that's where we went as well. And uh, those weights were called Saint, were called uh, Debon. Debon was a weight of gold, silver, or copper. Now, between those two steps, there was an intermediate step, and money was something called a senyu. The senyu was a weight of gold, but it was notional. It wasn't real, where they tried to keep it real and keep it material, but then it became a conceptual thing. So that's, where, that's what money was in Egypt. It eventually became gold and silver, and that eventually did lead to cycles and perhaps the end of the Egyptian empire. But that's where it sort of started. Okay, uh, we'll talk more a bit about that. Now, uh, Carl, do you see the next slide where I've got uh, these, these uh, squiggles? Yep. And it's called action plus, and reaction equals action, one, two, and reaction, A, B, C, D. Do you see that chart? Yep. Okay, that chart is the idealization of how prices move. That chart is the basis of all technical analysis. Those uh, one, two, three, four, there's like nine of them, right? Yeah. And it's the basis of business cycles, and it's, it's actually fractals, and it's the basis of life, and it's the law of how all these things work. Now, it's not just me making that up out of nowhere. Uh, this stuff has been analyzed and studied multiple times. But if you're not aware of the underlying concepts, what's going to happen is when people are predicting gold's going up, gold's going down, Bitcoin's going up, Bitcoin's going down, etc., you have not got a context for talking about it. And anybody that does technical analysis well has to know the stuff backwards and forwards. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe what those uh, pictures actually mean. And uh, it's about the life cycles of money, which are action and reaction. And then I talk about what are the action when things go up uh, charts and what are the reaction when things go down charts. Is that okay, Carl? Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Okay. What you find is that in all cycles, and I'm actually going to talk about uh, after this slide, I'm going to talk about the actual cycles over the past 5,000 years. It's going to sound a bit theoretical at first, but later I'm going to integrate them into what's happening now, what happened in 1929, what happened in 1914, what happened in 1720, Tulipa Mania, et cetera. I'm going to tie it into reality, including the reality of today. But first, let me give you the, the, the generalization. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Okay. When you look at the top left, under where it says action and reaction, that's the way all cycles work in politics, in nature, in power, in patents, which are, which are provided, uh, in all kinds of things. And Marriage? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. You start off at the beginning, uh, ups and downs, ups and downs, and then at the end, it's over, you die. It's exa- and it follows that pattern, basically. Now, uh, top left, first of all, uh, you've got basically seven steps in every cycle. You have the first is the growth cycle, and you'll see that there's an up and then a down, an up and then a down and an up. That's every growth cycle. It's got five movements, three ups and uh, two downs. Right, Carl? Yeah, you see I'm, that? I'm, yeah I'm, I'm studying this. Yeah. Right. So what that is, is up is the growth phase. The first down is called wave two. That's the correction. You hear the word correction? That's what a correction is. Now, you can get corrections in bull markets, which we have here, but you can get corrections in bear markets, which I'll talk about after. Now, after the first bear, you have another bull market. That's wave three. Then you have a correction, wave four. And I'll give specific examples in the slide after this, or, or I'll talk about them, I should say. 
And then you've got wave five is your final uh, bull market. Uh, now, you've got a bull and a bear, a bull and a bear, and a bull and a bull. But you know what happens after that? It's a fractal. That cycle is over. Now you get into, I'm sorry, that the growth part of the fractal is over. Now you get into the bear, the bear cycle. And the bear is down, up, and down. Two downs and up. That's what makes a bear cycle. So recently, people are getting bullish because they think, hey, NASDAQ's going up. Oh, the S&P's going up. Hey, the Dow's going to recover. It's all looking good. That's just wave B in the bear cycle. The bear cycle is down, up, and down. That's just a current correction in a bear market. So that's your basic price pattern, whether it's a junior stock that starts in year one and dies in year five, or whether it's TD Bank where you've got 150 years, or whether it's Bitcoin that goes from zero to 10,000, back to 5,000, up to 60,000, back to 20,000. That's those cycles. And people get caught when after Bitcoin goes from 60 to 20, it goes back to 28. Oh, it's going to 100,000, it's going to a million, maybe but it's going to follow that pattern. Everything always does. So that's your basic pattern. The, 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 the ups and the downs, the ups is two ups and two downs, and the down is two downs and one up. By the way, if you add up the ups and the downs, you end up with zero. So if that was the way it really worked, that the downs and the ups were equal, the world would never advance. But there's a belief in economics. There's a belief some people have in the history, of course, of history, things improve over time. And that's because the bear markets never uh, eliminate 100% of the prior bull market. It might eliminate 90% or 98% like NASDAQ did when it got killed in 2000. It 90% got eliminated. But the bear market never eliminates at all. So when you have the, the three ups and the two downs, that's a net up of about 0.5, of one, I should say. And when you have the two downs in the bear market, the one up, that's a negative of, of 0.5. So you're, you're, the first one is a positive of one, I should say. Three ups and two downs it ends up being a positive of one. The bear market's about a positive of 0.5. So after those eight cycles, you end up with, uh, up ahead by one half of a step. That's your basic cycle. With me so far, Carl? Yep. Okay. Now, here's the funny part. If you look at wave one, and it's, it's shown underneath, if you look at wave one, wave one is actually a five-cycle situation. It's got its own three ups and two downs. If you look at wave two going down, that's got its two downs and one up. And wave three's got its five waves, three up and two down. That's your fractal. So what it says is that when you follow a stock, and if you look at the pattern over a year, that stock also has a pattern over 12 months. And that 12-month stock has a pattern over one month, over one week, and it's got patterns over the day. And that daily thing has patterns over an hour. So when you look at the stock prices, all these patterns repeat, and they're all happening at the same time. So whenever you're in a cycle, I'm going to give an example of how significant that is. You're actually in an up cycle and a down cycle at various parts in the bigger cycle and the lesser cycle. Um, that's why the stock prices look the way they look. Now, efficient markets theorists and Brownian motion theorists and the guys, Black Shoals, the guys who came up with option theories, they believe it's all random and there's no logic to it. But the real guys who actually make a ton of money and, and who are in the real world believe there is a pattern to it. And I certainly believe that as well. 
with me so far on the fractal part? I am. Now, what I should say, just to give, should I give an ex- a simple example of fractals or just leave it at that? No, I would give a simple, I would. Here's a simple example then. Let's say you have a square, okay? Well, if you add three squares, now you've got four squares, right? Those four squares make a square, right? Mm-hmm. So the big square has got four, four pieces and those are squares. So the big part has four squares, right? Now you can break each of those squares down into four more squares. So each of those four squares have four squares. So there's another fractal. And you've got four times four is 16. You've got 16 smaller squares in the bigger square. You can keep getting more and more squares down and you can take the big square you started with, take four of those and get them bigger and bigger. That's a fractal. And what happens is whenever you're standing in a square, you're standing in a tiny square, an even tinier square, and the bigger square, and the bigger square, everything is contained in everything else. And that's a fractal. And when you're a human being, uh, you're living in a um, uh, period that you can relate to, which is 70 years or, or 60 years or 80 years. But the reality is prices have memories. And, and, and cycles have memories. And if you think that's the original mi- uh, uh, thing I made up because I'm out of my mind, read Mandelbrot, who's a real scientist who explains it, and then look at the modern publications of finance theory and start to realize that where a price has been and how a price has acted determines how a price will act in the future and where it's been in the future. Now, I'll give you a practical example of that. If you take one guy like Elon Musk who's had three or four successes with technology, chances are when he gets another company going, he'll be successful. You take another guy, same age, same IQ, same intelligence, same knowledge base, but his three or four previous businesses all failed. Chances are the next one will fail too. Prices have memories, businesses have memories, cultures have memories. And uh, that relates to the stock market and that's why prices have uh, memories and that's why stocks have personalities some tend to go up a bit and down a lot some go up a lot and down less some go up and down about the same they all have their personalities based on what happened before can they change yes they can change but it takes time okay so far carl yep okay now when it comes to Move one column to the right. It's called action, and then one and two, and then reaction, A, B, C, and D. And I'll be brief on that. Bull markets are very nice and easy. A bull market is basically going up and it feels great. And that's that that uh, that stepladder thing in the middle there. It's, I call it number one. That's your impulse wave. And the only other kind of wave you have is a diagonal, which is below that number two. It looks like a bit of a triangle, but it's basically going up. Those are your two bull markets. And anybody under the age of, um, uh, let's say, uh, 70, who's been around since 1950s and who's invested since then, has basically only really been familiar with, with bull markets like that. Nice, simple markets. Another word for it is buy the F and dip. Buy the dip. That's a bull market. When you can buy the dip and make money, that's a bull market. Or if you listen to Warren Buffett, who says, just keep buying stocks. In the long run, they go up. That's a bull market. Is that okay, Carl? Yep. Now, here's the, now here's the yep. scary news. Yes. For the last 50 or 60 years, that's been really nice. But when you go back and look at the cycles, just like you can get bull markets the last 70 years, 
you can get bear markets, bear markets that can last 70 years, and they're pretty ugly. And they've happened, and I'm going to talk about them in a few moments. Now, what does the bear market look like? Now we're going to move over to the third column. It's called reaction, A, B, C, D. Is that okay? Yep. All right. There are three, there are uh, four patterns or five patterns of bear markets, okay? Now, first question is, why do bear markets have more patterns than bull markets? Well, I'll tell you why. There's, there's two reasons for it. There's the big reason, and then there's the, 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 the smaller reason. The big reason is that, this is my belief, over the course of humanity, things always do get better sooner or later. Anyone that's over the age of 50 or 60 probably knows that. Sooner or later, as bad as things get, they do get better. Because the general swing in life is positive. That's, that's the, 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 the higher degree wave. That's like the big fractal. But when things go down, they go down. And you're having negatives versus fighting positives. And those two forces fighting each other out. And that affects stocks very directly. That's what makes these bear markets very complicated. Okay. And in the last two, you know, one or two weeks, that's what people are facing. They're trying to be bullish. But when you look at the news, there's bears, there's bulls. He's a perma bear. He's a perma bull. What's really going on? That's what bear markets are like. When you're in a bull market, Carl, you've lived through bull markets, you know, for quite a while now. You don't have all this contention going on, do you? No. Everyone's well, pretty bullish. Much, pretty much my entire life's been a bull market. Right. Well, we did a bear now for a year and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, people are still used to buying the, 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 the dip, but they may find out it's not working. That, or we're going to see. We're going to see. Now, uh, so when you've got your bull market, you've got diagonals, which is a mild bull market, and you've got your, uh, your, your uh, impulse waves. This, the zigzag is the basic bear market. That's a sudden move down. So when they talk about a crash, that's a zigzag. Mm-hmm. And it goes down quite a bit, and the correction is anywhere from 50 to 70% or more. Now, a flat, that's B. Uh, so, that's, hold on. You can't have a 30. So, if you have a 30% correction, that's not considered reaction A? Um, no. No. Not typically. Not typically. Well, As a matter of fact, what we just had uh, last year, the 20% so-called, so-called bear market, that's, that's not even – that's not even a mild bear market by historical standards. That's that's the beginning of a bear market, right? That's like the shock part. The it's not part. even a shock. Hmm. That's the beginning of the shock for a real bear market. Now, bear in mind, the reason we're having inflation and the reason these older guys are talking about asset bubbles is because they've lived through or are aware of at least one real uh, – bear market, which was 29, although that wasn't even a big one, to be honest, by historical standards. Um, now, if you, if you look at, the, at that zigzag, do you see what I've, where, I've, where I've got A labeled at the top on the right? There's an ABC. Yeah. Yeah. You see the five steps down, and then it, it, then it goes up a bit, and then the steps down? Yeah. Okay. That first little squiggly down that you can hardly even see when you look at the whole bear market you see that first squiggle, the first of five going down? Yeah. That's where we may be. We may be at the upper top of that right now. Bob Prechter thinks we are, and a lot of technical guys think we are, but some people don't think we are. But that's when you, when you hear the, the, the real bears, that's what they're talking about. Okay. 
And by the way, when you hear about bank collapses, bank runs, credit suisse, derivatives, pension funds uh, in the UK, et cetera, et cetera, that's what we're talking about. Did you Trump's hear indictment? Uh, did you? Well, Trump's indictment. Did you hear Farik Zakaria last week and what he's been talking about the U.S. dollar lately on CNN by any chance or no? I haven't heard any of his comments, no. Okay, well, I got a slide later where I'm talking about all the news about all the fears which are out there, and that those are signs of a, of a of an upcoming bear market. By the way, Nasdaq fell ninety percent in two thousand, and in two thousand eight, the friggin' market fell thirty forty percent. Okay, now in twenty twenty, everybody here watched the uh, uh, the S and P go from thirty three hundred to twenty two fifty in three or four days, right? Yeah. That was a 30% collapse. Then they forgot about it because Trump increased the national debt by 25%. Just imagine that. He gave everybody free money to try to, uh, try to prevent that. Just, to, just think about it, what that really means. Right? Now, it seems to have worked out. But guess what? Two years later, we're in the first 18-month bear market we've had in a long, long time. Now, that thing that happened in 2020, that is what a uh, – uh, the first part of the zig, what a zigzag correction starts to look like. And, um, you know, in that case, it was a correction of, of maybe, uh, you know, uh, it was a correction of maybe uh, 30%, right? And, and then, you know, the money took it back up again. But when you look at the, at the uh, growth curve after 2020, it was pretty damn strong, you know, when Portnoy was out there and, and NFTs and the first tweet of Jack Dorsey went to $3 million before it went to $3,000. But, you know, now we're in this correction phase, which uh, you got to be aware of. So there's your zigzag correction, which is anywhere between uh, 50 and 78 percent. Then you've got a flat correction. A flat correction is a correction that's not a major correction. It tends to be a, a fourth wave correction or a, or a second wave correction. And by the way, a flat wave is anywhere from 30 um, percent to 50 percent. By historical standards, that's... Uh, that, that's that's a modest correction. So when you hear about, hey, 20% is a bear market, that's actually pretty humorous if you actually know financial history. 20% is, is, not, a, is not really a bear market. And even, uh, by the way, uh, Jesse Livermore, who made, in today's dollars, half a billion dollars in the collapse of 1907 and $2 or $3 billion in the stock market, a crash of 29 to 32, he didn't even think any any move of less than twenty percent was necessarily significant at all, in terms of an upward trend or a downward trend. Very interesting, these guys. Okay, now uh, the weakest kind of, of bear market is uh, is uh, is C and is C. One of the weakest is C. It's called a triangle, and that's where the highs are lower and the lows are higher. You see that, right? The highs are lower and the lows are higher. That's a correction. And that's sort of where we are right now. You know, we, we've got, we had lower highs, but you do get highs. We've got higher lows, but we're sort of in the middle of a bearish kind of market that really hasn't, you know, substantially corrected yet to go back to where we were. And finally, you can have bear markets go on and on and on and on and on. Those are called double threes or triple threes. So those are your basic patterns. Okay, so far? Yep. Okay, now I'm going to get... Uh, which I sort of like. I hope it doesn't bore people, but but it's 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 sort of humorous. It's sort of fun, and I five thousand years in about five minutes of of cycles and of bear markets and bull markets, and then I'm going to tie in where Robert Prechter thinks we are 
in, in, the, in those 5,000 years, and he's serious about it, and he's the most followed technician there is. And it does review the fact that when you're in a, in a, um, when you're in a big cycle going down, and then when you're one level down in a fractal, you're in the medium level going down. And then when you're one level lower, you're in the smaller level going down. That's a bear market. And by the way, it's just like surfing. When you're surfing, if you're on a, you're on a big wave on a big wave on a big wave, all going up, that's a hell of a, hell of a wave. Now, when you're in a, on a big wave going up, but then the wave on top of that's a medium one going down. And then the one on top of that's going up. That's not too bad, right? Or if you've got two downs and one up at the same time, that's not too bad. But when you're in a, down wave with the down wave on top of that, the down wave on top of that, you're going down. You might drown. And if you're in an up wave going up and up and up, you might drown too. So that's, that's the similarity between surfing and between the stock market and cycles. Okay, I'm going to carry on now. Okay, Carl? Yep. All right. Now, uh, if, if you read uh, Prechter and if you read Elliot and if you read even, uh, well, I guess it's those two guys and Neely, uh, You've got uh, millennial cycles, which are one to 2,000 years. You've got sub-millennium cycles, which are uh, 500 to 1,000 years. You've got grand super cycles, which are 200 years. Then you've got super cycles, which are 50 years or 20 to 50 years. And those are your cycles. And the super cycle is part of a sub-millennium cycle, which is part of a millennium millennial cycle. I'm going to run through the cycles right now. and then. I'm going to tell you exactly where Prechter believes we are. Uh, I'm not, you know, he, he thought we were pretty much there for the last uh, 30 years. So, you know, he has been early and he might still be early, but that's where he believes we are. But it does, but you can't understand technical analysis if you don't understand these cycles. First, let me give you the five big cycles, the big ones, okay? Yeah. Right, Carl? Yeah. Okay. And uh, just so people know, you can feel free to, DM me questions. Uh, you can put them in, in the nest because I know I've had a few come in so far. So we'll just get through this, uh, you know, all your slides, and then we'll get to some of those. Okay. And I'm going to get in. Uh, this is the last slide that's really historical. And then I'm going to get into the very modern stuff. Okay. So here's, and this is sort of humorous. I find this humorous and, I, and I, I actually enjoy it. But here we are. In recorded history, the first cycle was Egypt from 2500 BC to 1500 BC. If you look at the economics back then, that was a bull market. That was a 1,000-year bull market. Then you had the second cycle, was it was a bear market, from 1,500 to 500, and that was the end of Egypt. The third millennial cycle, like millennial means 1,000 years, but it could be 1,000 to 2,000, was Greece and Rome. And that was from 500 BC to 50 AD. That was a bull market. Then you had a bear market from 50 AD to 750. That was the Dark Ages, and people got very poor. Then you had the modern era, which started the 750 with, with uh, Charlemagne, and right now we're in that millennium, the fifth millennium. So that's that big, big, big cycle we're in, and we're in the fifth growth cycle right now. That's the big cycle, okay? Now, I'm going to talk to you about the fifth millennial cycle, which breaks up into um, um, sub-millennial cycles, okay? The first cycle was 750 to 1270. That was Charlemagne to the Mongol invasion of Europe. The second one was 1270 to 1490. That was a bear market. And when the Mongols invaded Europe was finished, they got very poor. But by 1490, with the Renaissance, the Reformation, Christopher Columbus, the bear market came to an end. The third sub-millennial cycle was 1490 to now, 
We are right now in the third submillennial cycle of the, of the fifth millennium. I know it sounds like astrology, but when you break it down, it, it's actually pretty good history. Now I'm going to get really modern. So we're in that third cycle. Remember, one, three, and five are up cycles, right? So we're still in the up cycle. Okay? Mm-hmm. With me so far? Yeah. Okay. So here's, here are the dates on the submillennium. And now I'm going to get modern. But the funny thing is, when you hear me say this is getting modern, you're going to laugh because you're going to think, that can't possibly be modern, but I'm going to give it to you. In the current 1,000-year cycle that we're in, from 1490, which is like from 1490 to about 2,500, in that cycle, the first major bull market was from 1490 to 1720. That was the first bull market. The Reformation, the age of reason, the beginning of science and technology, the agricultural revolution, people got richer and wealthier and things did well. That was the first cycle of the sub-millennial cycle. It was called Grand Super Cycle 1. Now, Grand Super Cycle 2 started in 1720. Do you have any... All what happened around 1720, Carl? No, I know you've referenced this a few times. Since. Okay, okay. Yeah. The Tulip Omania, where uh, Holland went bankrupt, was 1720s. The Mississippi Bubble, where France went bankrupt, resulting in the French Revolution, 70 years later, that blew up. And the, um, uh, the uh, South Sea Bubble that destroyed, almost destroyed Britain and bankrupted Sir Isaac Newton, that blew up. That collapse started a 70-year bear market, and that bear market ended with two revolutions. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, that was Grand Super Cycle 2. Okay? Now I'm going to share with you the Grand Super Cycle we're in of the third millennium, of the third sub-millennium of the fifth millennium. We're in the cycle that started in 1794, after those revolutions, that started off France, modernized Europe, brought in Napoleon all, and all, all that stuff, and I brought in the, the Americans who built up the, war, the world in the last 200 years. That's Grand Super Cycle 3, and that's we're at the top, according to Prector, we're at the top of that cycle. Now, he's believed we've been at the top of that cycle since 1990 or 2000. So far, it hasn't happened, but you, you have noticed a lot of people talking about bubbles and stuff, right? Now, yeah. the question is, are we now in Grand Super Cycle 4? Because that could be the big bear market that makes 1929 look not too bad. <laughs> that takes us back to 1720. Because, remember, two and four are the bear markets. One, three, and five are the bull markets, right? So, so we're in that big wave, the sub-millennial from 1490. I know it sounds to some people like, you know, a trillion years ago, but it wasn't really. And are we in Grand Super Cycle 4? And that's what Prector thinks we're going to find out over the next couple of years, right? But a lot of analysts are quite negative. And if you follow a lot of technical analysts on Twitter or on LinkedIn, et cetera, you're going to find a lot of them are, are pretty negative. And, and so, are, so are other people as well. You know, for example, Ray Dalio got negative. Um, Jim Rogers has got negative. Uh, Soros has got negative. Uh, there's lot, lots. Jerry, Jeremy Grantham is negative, right? He, there's a lot of these guys who are very experienced investors. Uh, Charlie Munger is pretty anxious, right? So very interesting. Now, finally, let me go through uh, this super cycle I just ended, and then and then I'll, I'll wrap it up and we'll start to get to modern. Okay. Uh, super cycle one eighty four to thirty five. That was after the U.S. and the French revolutions. 
Then we had Super Cycle 2, the bear market. Remember, it's a one and three are up, one, three, and five are ups, two and four are downs. We had a three, five, we had a 17 year bear market, 17 year bear market in 1835 when Andrew Jackson killed the British banks. Okay. Then there was a bull market from 1850 to 29. That was the good old days, the Gilded Age, all kinds of stuff. That big bull market included the Civil War and two, uh, two three year depressions, but they weren't 20 year depressions. Okay. Then you had the huge collapse of 29 to 32. That was number four. And then we had the final bull, 32 to 2020, according to Prechter. So there's your cycles on top of cycles on top of cycles. You can see where if you get a whole bunch of downs, that could be a problem. I'm going to now sort of uh, modernize it, okay? I'm going to go to slide six called example of how prices move. Is that okay? Yep. Okay. So if you look at chart five, I'll let you study that on your own. But suffice it to say, this comes from Prechter, and I've modified it somewhat. He believes uh, right now uh, we basically had a um, the beginning of a downturn at the beginning of uh, 2022. We all know it was a down market. Then we had over the course of uh, the early part of this of this year, 20, we had sort of a, a market coming back. Some people felt it was very positive. Um, that's the first step of the correction up. When you're in a big bear market, when the stocks go up, that's a correction up, but the basic trend is down. So he thought that was correction one or intermediate one. Uh, after the correction, we, we went down again in the uh, fall, right? And that was a correction two going, uh, that was a bear two going down. And right now we're actually in a correction that's going up. That's what we've seen. So in the last uh, two or three weeks, as very few stocks in the S&P have gone up, and as those stocks have pulled the S&P up, and as the S&P has, uh, I'm sorry, as NASDAQ got pulled up by those stocks, and as NASDAQ pulled the S&P up, and as the S&P pulled up the Dow, but pretty restricted, and as Bitcoin started to move up, they all move up together, uh, that is your second correction of the first part of a bear market. That's one interpretation of technical analysis. Now, what I should say about technical analysis is that when you ever do technical analysis, uh, it's not, you can't exactly forecast with it. Nobody can predict the future exactly. It's a model you carry to see where you think we are. But if you look at the charts, the long chart, the medium chart, the short chart, you're going to see that this bullish market we've been in since uh, um, you know, after 2008 and after 2016, and after 2020, we've been very flat for a long time. We had a big collapse in 2020, you know, March of 2020. It came back pretty quick, like within a month. And then Portnoy took over, and, and NFTs took over, and everything took over and went up, right? You know, if, the more bankrupt you were, the higher your stock went. But we've been in this correction going on. So the question is, where is the price going to go? And, you know, different people have different targets. Most technical guys... Short term, are fairly negative. I'm now going to go to slide seven on inflation. Okay, and uh, so we've we've talked about technical analysis again. That's probably the the, the last time I'll go through it in that kind of detail. But but hopefully we can you know we can make these slides available. We can store it somewhere so people have a way to refer to in the future when we use these various terms. Um, so we've been talking about price movement now. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in Yorkville. I'm looking out the window at the house I used to live in on Admiral Road. 
in the 1950s, that house cost $28,000 and the average person made about 10000 So with three years of income, you could, you could buy that house. Right now, that house costs 4 to $5 million, and the average person does not make uh, $1.5 million a year. That's inflation. That's inflation, mm-hmm. right? So the, the stock charts, when you, when you plot prices without inflation, you're looking at nominal prices. So you get confused. You get fooled. You think you're feeling richer. When, when, when the assets are going up, but actually you're getting poorer. And I would suggest that many millennials, uh, meaning under the age of 40 and over the age of, I don't know, 30 or, or something like that, who maybe feel, you know, they're having trouble making a living. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, one guy who worked at a gas station or a factory could buy a house, raise two or three kids, raise a spouse or vice versa, and he all needed one income. It's very, very, very hard to do right now, right? That's inflation. So when you look at these charts... Well, and that's a very interesting point, right? Because right now, if you're, say, you're born born into the, uh, in the 80s or 90s and 2000s, actually even in in, in the 70s, a lot of uh, things that are being, that were passed down from the industrial age don't work, don't work in the information age. So you know, for example, saving, you know, now obviously savings is starting to get a return, but um, yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point. So if, you know, when you're trying to make money in in this era, you cannot use the same fundamentals that you did back in the, in the 60s, right? Right. Now, the interesting question is, is that because of the information era or technology, or is that because unrelated to technology? I would suggest it is something totally different, unrelated to technology. Technology has nothing to do with it. Zero, I would suggest. But we'll get into that later. Now, uh, I've tried to do an illustration of inflation here, and this is so important for holding of cash, understanding Bitcoin, understanding the stock market, understanding real estate. It's absolutely crucial, but most people have real problems with it, especially because of uh a lot of a lot of false statements coming out of all kinds of people and Stephanie Kelton. You know who Stephanie Kelton was, by any chance? No. Have you heard of modern monetary theory? Yep. That was her, right? She invented it and she said you can have government deficits going from up to a trillion and it doesn't matter, money doesn't matter. Well, guess what? She got proven wrong. <laughs> she's still alive? <laughs> she's still alive and she's still struggling, but people started to realize she's full of it. Uh, all this transitory inflation, when transitory inflation became real, uh, all of a sudden, and then when, it's, when transitory inflation became real, the Fed pretends they can get rid of it, and then banks start going down, and bank runs start, and Credit Suisse gets, you know, one of the world's biggest banks disappears in two seconds, and Sam Bankman-Fried disappears with $3 billion. Uh, hmm, all of a sudden, interesting things are happening, right? And the U.S. is, is trying to, you know, weaponize the dollar and get rid of Bitcoin. I wonder what's going on, right? There's a lot of stuff going on. It's got to do with inflation and real interest rates, but it starts with inflation. Now, there's that chart there on slide five, I think. It's as simple as I could get it. I'll just run through it, and we'll just leave it at that, okay? Let's say there's no inflation, okay? If you buy a government bond, which I think is a horrible investment, if you buy a government bond for $100,000, you see that in the chart, right? Uh, after 20, you're okay, Carl, can you hear me? Yep. 
Okay, so so on column two, that or that first column, I try to keep it real simple. When you when you buy a bond for a hundred thousand bucks, and that bond pays five percent, and there's no inflation, in twenty years you've got two hundred sixty-five thousand of real money. Your spending power is two hundred sixty-five thousand three twenty, and you've earned in real dollars and real spending power one hundred sixty-five thousand three hundred twenty dollars. End of story. So when you when you're living in a non-inflationary world, that's what happens world. You bought it for a hundred thousand. Now let's say interest rates go down, they actually go negative. What if you got at, at maturity? Well, because interest rates went down during the period, here's the first problem. Instead of having 265, 320, you've got 210. You've already lost $65,000 because your reinvestment rate, because rates went down, so you couldn't reinvest at the same high rate, have gone down. You've already lost uh 210 versus 265, 55,000. So you can see that car, right? If you've got a 5% bond, the assumption is you can reinvest your savings at 5% and keep earning 5%. When rates go to 1%, even though your bond goes up initially, your reinvestment rate goes down, you end up with less money. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay, good. Now let's look at the next part. Meanwhile, you had 5%, sorry, you had 5% inflation, or, or that's exactly. So you're 210, which is already less. In buying power, just like the house I'm looking at down the street here, is fifty-four thousand dollars. So you've lost a hundred. You've lost seventy-five percent of your smaller amount in spending power. So instead of having two sixty-five three twenty, you've got fifty-four two thirty-four. You've basically lost half your money from what you started with. That is what inflation does, and that's screws up the prices in the market, screws up bonds, causes Bitcoin to move. That is the confusion that's going on, and that's why the Fed's concerned about it when it hit consumer prices, although they should have been concerned about it when it hit asset prices, because when you hit asset prices and it goes up and up and up, sooner or later you're going to hit retail prices, and people are going to get really, really poor, and people in California are going to want to get paid a million dollars a year because they're, they were slaves, you know. And then, uh, then Trudeau's going to give you an extra more money to compensate for your loss of money, which makes it even worse. It goes on and on, and then you tend to get all kinds of problems, like wars and stuff like that. That's why inflation is a problem, and that's the that's the you know easiest way. Uh, that's the what, the toughest part that I could uh, easiest way I could try to illustrate it. I think. Uh, now I'm going to throw something funny at you, Carl. When you have inflation historically, you know what tends to follow inflation? Deflation. Deflation. There's no such thing as disinflation. Disinflation is a, a false concept. It's a political concept. It's not true. When they talk about, well, we're going to have less inflation, it's never happened in history over, over a longer period of time or at the end of cycles. Do you want to explain the difference between disinflation and deflation? Sure. If you have 7% inflation, then it goes to 2% inflation. All right, that's disinflation. You, you have less inflation than you used to have. and when you have an asset bubble uh, and you try to transfer consumer prices to assets and you try to make that happen, that's what they've been doing since 87. Uh, you can have apparent disinflation in the consumer price index. But sooner or later, if you keep bloating up the assets, at some point you get deflation because money loses its value and they run out and they have to redefine everything and everyone gets forced to work for less. And businesses get forced to accept less than it's over. 
It's happened before, and I'll give you an illustration in the next page, next slide, and that's deflation. So pause there. Do you think that deflation is a good thing? So for as example, even though we're in this inflationary time right now, um, you know, everybody wants to make more money. They want to raise. Right. But that's actually inflationary, right? Because you're just matching your, your purchasing power, which seems right. But is that the right thing? Because now you're just dealing with funny money, right? You're, so your, your purchasing power goes down. So now you're making more money to make up for it. But is that sustainable for long term growth? Yeah, you never catch up. And as a matter of fact, when inflation started in the 60s and 70s because of the Vietnam War and the government spending more money, we never caught up. We never got rid of it. Except for a long time, we transferred inflation to assets. And after the 1987 crash, assets have been going up and up and up. And by the way, how did we keep consumer prices down? Two ways. We imported cheap commodities from Africa and South America. We kept them poor and us rich. And we got cheap stuff from, you guessed it, China. So they caught up bit by bit. We ended up being a lot richer than they are now. Have you noticed any trends lately where maybe China is not shipping us cheap stuff anymore and Africa doesn't want to, and Saudi Arabia doesn't want to uh, ship us cheap oil anymore? Have you noticed any changes in the last six months? Yes. Right. China is saying, forget it. And Saudi Arabia is saying, forget it. And they're talking about, you know, we don't like you dollarizing or bulletizing, arming the, the, the uh, you know, the uh, U.S. dollar, et cetera. We haven't seen that in your lifetime before, have we? No. And that's, 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 where, that's why we're at a dangerous spot right now, potentially, where you might actually see deflation. Um, what would you like to see? Um, well, the truth of the matter is I like to see it doesn't matter because as, as cycles happen, these cycles happen. They go up and they go down. You've got big cycles, medium cycles. You've got huge cycles, the millenniums. Big cycles, the submillenniums, and then you get cycles on top of cycles, and we're just on a cycle. And guess what? Every every small cycle lasts about 70 years. So we're just at the end of a 70-year cycle, and that's just the way it is. Uh, what I'd like to see is uh, as many people as I know possible uh, think think for themselves, study this stuff, figure out if it, if, it, if it makes sense to them, or if not, tell me why, and then apply these principles because – on the average, humanity moves ahead, and you want to be part of that part of humanity that moves ahead no matter how bad it gets or good it gets. At the end of the day, no pain, no gain. So when, when people got out of control, there's a bit of pain or a lot of pain, and then, then there's gain. Or to put it differently, you know that famous quote, the beatings will continue until your attitude improves? Yep. Or no pain, no gain? Well, you know, when things get out of control, they, they self-correct. Uh, it's called Darwinism, or it's called life, or cycle. Yeah, yeah that's well said. Okay. Right in the wave. <laughs> now I'm going to make this more practical uh, before I get up to specific recommendations, etc. And the slide, the inflation slide with those pictures of uh, German inflation. And um, you see that? You see that next slide, slide number four, I think. Yep. Okay. Now, here are the big messages tonight. One: What is money? Money should be an accounting unit. But money ends up becoming a, a, a feeling of wealth, which it really shouldn't be. In ancient Egypt, 5,000 years ago, uh, money was food, money was rice, they exchanged. We foolishly call that a barter economy as opposed to a real money economy. 
We call it a barter economy because it's a political thing that governments used to say we're more advanced than they were in those in those silly old days. We actually use money because we're sophisticated. But, uh, you know, really, if money was real things, which got produced uh, all the time, then it'd, it'd be a different kind of world. Okay, now, what are the real causes of inflation? Well, I'm suggesting that the cause of inflation is government spending. But why do governments spend? Because they want to get reelected. And why do they want to, and why do they, why does spending get them reelected? Because they give stuff to people for nothing. And what is it they're actually giving to people? They're stealing from the future to get more in the present. Yeah. And that's why the, the educational system, the hospital system, the Medicare system is starting to look the way it looks. Because we've stolen from the future. And that's why a lot of millennials don't think too much of the, the older generations. They think it's their fault. Am I misstating that, or, or is there any truth no. to what I'm saying? Or? Well, it's subjective, but yes, I understand your point. Okay. Okay, so what I'll talk about now from the slide is, uh, I'll run through it again. The real cause of inflation are envy, politics, an attempt to avoid the business cycle, which is not avoidable. And right now, international competition is causing inflation because they're trying to avoid what's called mercantilism, which means real assets. And of mercantilism, there's two forms. There's good forms and bad forms. The good form is that when, when people use real assets as money and, and create real assets and they invest, and they don't blow it all at the same time they're producing it all. The bad form is when you believe that the pie in the world is a fixed size and the more you have, it's better and the less, therefore somebody else has less as opposed to the world should be getting richer. Everybody should be getting richer and happier all the time. So those are the real causes of inflation. They're psychological and they're their average human nature, mob psychology, et cetera. Now, um, this is something else I've talked about before, but how do we know inflation is here? Because those numbers of the federal deficit, which is the best it could possibly be if the U.S. government continues the way it is from 23 to 29, those are their numbers. They were up here last week as well. We got It's growing at 5% a year, but the population is only growing at half a percent a year, and uh, efficiency is only growing at half a percent a year. So we know there has to be inflation. And uh, do we know what happens historically with inflation? Yeah, I, I take it from 1930. And uh, here's what we know. When inflation got real bad, you had World War II. And then when inflation got really bad again, uh, we got the 80s where they, where, they, where they blew up the bubbles. And now we've gone from 32% to 56% to 103% of, of you know, of uh of uh, deficits to 120 percent. That's that's GDP. That's uh, money. That's GDP to uh, uh, that. That's the government deficit divided by GDP. We know the government deficits are getting real high. Okay, so that's to remind you. Now those pictures on the right are the pictures of Germany, and that's what happened when they had massive inflation in 1921, 22, 23. You had to have like a, you had to you know you had to be able to carry 50 pounds of paper to be able to buy a loaf of bread. They started just burning the stuff or, or playing with it. And that was the end. That, that was that was it. And you know what? What followed that inflationary era of twenty one, twenty two? Well, you know, it was deflation, and then it was World War Two. Hitler got into power, and it was not not very good because people were suffering way too much. That's what the government's trying to avoid, and that's why they, you know, pretend they can they can get rid of inflation. But you know, as you can see, we're having troubles. Now I'm going to get into the asset classes, and later we'll get into the Bitcoin versus gold. We'll talk a bit about Bitcoin. Uh, can I move the slide that talks about the asset classes? 
Yep. Okay. Now, uh, that's the slide. Uh, I use the concepts of fragile, robust, and anti-fragile. So when you look at assets, and we'll, when we start to talk about assets in the future, there's two categories to look at. Category one is, are you looking at things short term, which presumably means a year, medium term, which means five years, or long term, which means uh, you know a lifetime, or familial worth, like the Rothschilds? So you have to, when when someone says buy this or sell this or this is good, you got to ask, and we're going to do this all the time. Is it short, medium, long term, or intergenerational? That's number one. And a lot of the talking heads, a lot of the newsletters do not talk about that, but that's the way we're look at it. Okay. Next, when you look at an asset, there's three characteristics you have to look at. One is it fragile? So if something goes wrong, it blows up. Is it robust? If something goes wrong, it doesn't blow up. Or when things start to go wrong or unusual, does it actually go up? Is it like an insurance policy, but a supercharged insurance policy where you win when things go wrong? Those are your three categories. We're going to do that with all the assets. Okay. So let me look at the table on the right. And I'll just talk a bit about that. If you look at cash right now, is cash itself fragile? Yes, it is. Because if you have inflation, its value goes down. Is it ro- robust? Uh, yes, right now it may be because if the stocks or the bonds fall more than cash, it was it was good to have cash. And if we have deflation, it's really good to have cash. So it's and so it can be fragile or robust. It's not clear. Depends on what's happening. But it's important to have it. Is it anti-fragile? No. When things go really bad, does it really go up a lot? No, it's not anti-fragile. Um, so when you look at number one on the left, I'm suggesting right now cash is essential. And for anybody, you want to have at least three years of cash around if, for, for tough times. And uh, insufficient cash is what's caused governments to move to you know, high cash. Governments can see we had these bank runs. And they could come back at any moment, by the way. We've had these bank runs where people realize they want cash. They want it safe. So people are getting sort of smart. Also, people have been moving cash out of uh, banks that paid no interest to money market funds, etc. So, yeah, cash right now is good. Cash sometimes is trash, like uh, Dow used to say. Cash sometimes is king or queen or the third possibility, whatever they are. Depends on the series of genders. Uh, but that explains the desire for gold and Bitcoin. And I'll address Bitcoin as well. So that's cash. Now let's look at, at stocks, at stocks, you know, publicly traded companies. I'll talk about the big staple stocks like Bell Canada in Canada or McDonald's uh, in uh, the U.S. Are big stocks fragile? Uh, yes, they are. Because uh, you saw what happened in 2020. You saw what happened in 2008, presumably. You may have seen what happened in 99, 92, 87. Yeah, stocks can fall uh, 30% in one day. And over and, and classic bear markets, mild bear markets, they can fall 50%. And in real bear markets, they can fall 80%. So stocks are actually fragile. That's, those are times it's good to have cash, by the way. Now, are stocks robust? Yes. Uh, they are somewhat robust because if you have inflation and you've got staple stocks like Coca-Cola or other such companies where they can take their prices up or McDonald's, they cover inflation as long as it's not too horrible and people do have to eat. So if you can't eat really good food, you eat regular food. And so they're, they're actually somewhat robust as well. Are they anti-fragile? No, they're not. So stocks have, have mixed characters, which means you have to evaluate your short, medium, and long-term scenarios, where you are in life, 
where your savings are as you allocate the stocks around. Then there's the big essential technology stocks like uh, Amazon, like um, um, Apple. Apple. Apple's a perfect case. Uh, maybe the electrification stocks. Uh, are they fragile? Yeah. Right now, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on, and the governments, as we're learning, are working very closely with uh, Twitter. We're learning that government uh, lawyers go back and forth between Twitter and Facebook and Microsoft, and governments are trying to control big cap companies, and big cap companies, technology, are trying to work with government. They're working together. That's come up with the, with the, with the tabby and the Twitter files, and you know, Elon Musk, God bless him, has been re- re- releasing all this stuff. So the fact that some of these huge technology companies work with government, and for now governments are key, maybe makes these stocks uh, a little possibly, I put in that third column, anti-fragile. But tech, the big technology stocks, as we saw, they collapsed severely in the downturn. They're coming back right now, I think, because people are perceiving they're safer because they're working with government, even though, te- even though Elon Musk is pointing things out and the Republicans are pointing things out. Uh, but, you know, they have characteristics of both. Are they robust? I don't think they're robust, but sometimes they're fragile, sometimes anti-fragile. So if you're making recommendations about stocks like that, you have to consider where you sit in your strategy, your philosophy, your short, medium, long-term perspectives, your wealth perspectives. Do you have enough cash? Are you carrying debt, etc.? You know, you got to think about that. So those are those characteristics. Uh, but certainly, the, 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 you know, the technology stocks, which are good, so to speak, are Apple, Microsoft, IBM, Google. But their valuations compared to earnings are getting always been high. And in bull markets, that's fine. They can go higher and higher and higher. But in a real bear, bear market, they go lower and lower and lower. So, you know, you got to look at the fragile versus anti-fragile. It's a very good model put together by Nicholas, uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's written tons of great books and he's great on YouTube and he's a very smart guy. He's worth listening to the food stocks, Mendeley, uh, KHC, Archer Daniels. Uh, those are, pro- th- those are a nice, uh, alternative or a nice, uh, addition or a nice way to diversify with, with the big, with you know, the staple stocks. And you've got the military stocks. If things continue to go the way they're going, LMT, RTX, NCO, Northrop, Raytheon, uh, I've got a bunch of that in my portfolio. They're, they're, they're interesting. Are they anti-fragile? Well, if war is going to be a problem, yes, they're anti-fragile. Are they fragile? Yeah, they're fragile. But if you look at the stock charts, lady, they're hardly moving. They're like real estate. It's quite remarkable. Are they robust? It depends. It depends. I look at the bonds. I think treasury bonds are terrible. I think corporate bonds are high risk because of credit problems. And I would say short term, uh, if, 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 you're, if you're a very professional trader, you can trade them. Uh, but, long, but medium and long term, inflation is a killer. And if we have deflation, there's still bad news. If we have deflation, treasury bonds will probably go up, but corporate bonds will go down. Because if you have deflation, you've now got a credit problem with companies, not just a, not just a mathematics problem with interest rates. You see, when you have a, a government bond, as long as the government survives, if rates go down, the bonds go up, and maybe you think that's that's better. But corporate bonds, where you have a spread over the treasury rate, if they have a credit problem, they'll go to zero. We saw those those corporate bonds with Credit Suisse. They got knocked off to zero, right? 
two weeks ago. Very, very risky. I wouldn't touch it. Gold and silver. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Bitcoin. The uh, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, gold technically um, right now, actually. Okay. Now, technically speaking, without getting into it, you know, I ha- this would be a separate session when we look at it very carefully. Technically, we'll look at Bitcoin and gold technically, but right now I wanted to cover the basic stuff to start getting into it. Uh, the gold price uh, before the 1950s was like thirty, like $30. Okay, Carl? Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got a bunch of questions here, Sid. So we okay, do you want to take some questions now? No, I just, we'll get through it here, but the people okay. are waiting. Cool. Okay. So the gold price between uh, 19, 1915 and the 1950s was about 20 bucks. No growth, it just sat there. Uh, between in the seventies and eighties, gold went to six hundred dollars. That was wave one. Remember the up, down, up, down, up. The bull wave. That was wave one. That was a bull wave. So gold went uh, in the late seventies to uh, you know six seven hundred dollars uh, over a period of uh, like half a year, five or six months. And by the way, that shows why time ends in anything occur pretty quickly pretty quickly okay so that was that was wave one then between 1980 and 2000 gold fell back about take a guess 80 percent you see that bear market correction 80 percent right yeah that's a real bear market that was a zigzag down up and down two big downs one small up that was wave two now 2000 to 2015 we had a massive third wave. That was a typical third wave, which was three times the size of the first wave. 1.61 times 1.61 times 1.61 is about three. Rating the Fibonacci numbers, I won't get too theoretical, I'll leave it at that. That was a huge wave, and that peaked at about $1,800. That was wave three, okay? Now, wave four was the recent wave up until quite recently, where we went from 1800 to 1200 as Bitcoin was taking off. And that was wave four, the fourth, that was the second correction of a five-wave pattern, okay? Now, right now, uh, we've gotten back up to $1,800, Rome, actually $2,000, right? We're almost at 2000 bucks, right? Now, the big question is, are we still in the wave four correction, uh, where it's a flat, where it goes down, up, and then down a lot? Or are we at the beginning of the fifth wave? And the truth is, we have no idea. No idea. All kinds of guys who are gold bulls like to say it's the big bull coming. The bears say it's the big bear coming. It's going to zero. We don't have a clue. But in the short term right now, the church is telling us gold is going up. I own quite a bit of gold. Uh, now, for 5,000 years, gold has been able to buy the equivalent of a really good suit. It's probably robust, but it does go up and down quite a bit. Uh, but whether it's in, in nominal dollars, it'll go up a lot or down a lot, is we don't know. That's the story on gold right now. Um, okay. Uh, real estate, uh, back to the slide, fragile, robust, anti-fragile. If you have a mortgage on real estate, a big mortgage, that's a fragile asset. You could get slaughtered. If you have no mortgage or a small mortgage, or you're living with a spouse or a significant other and somebody else, and, and, you, and you're smart, you can keep your job going and make money or your business or whatever, no mortgage, little mortgage, and real estate is robust. It's like people think about gold. It's robust. It's fantastic. 
Yes, that's a good asset. Is it anti-fragile? Mm, I put maybe, I doubt it. So that's, that's how I look at real estate in terms of these models. Now, let's look at uh, Bitcoin, okay? And I'm going to get into Bitcoin in the next slide in much more detail. And later, we'll get into it in total detail, it, financially speaking, in terms of short, medium, long-term, long trends, and, and these risk categories. And we'll break out the charts, and we'll look at all the political stuff that's going on. And, but right now, you know, we're, we're starting to look at it in terms of this model, okay? So fragile, robust, and anti-fragile. All right, let me ask you, Carl. Would you say Bitcoin is fragile? Or not? Yeah. Yes. Why do you say that? Uh, because it's based on basically nothing. Well, I'll tell you why I'd say it. Because in a sense, gold is too. <laughs> I would say it's fragile because if it go from zero to sixty, back to twenty and fifteen, and back to thirty, uh, man, if you had a marriage or a friend that was that volatile, you'd say I don't, that's that's uh, what's the term for that? Uh, passive aggressive. Uh, that's fragile. That's a bad situation. So, so far, so far, Bitcoin's fragile so far. And it can do anything. Now, is it robust? You know what? We don't know. The big Bitcoin purists say it's robust. It's great. You can't touch it. It'll go up. It's strong, but it's, it's unproven. At least gold's been around 5,000 years. Bitcoin's been around five years, 10 years. We don't know by historical standards. And what I mean by no is anybody can have an opinion, but you should be signed to experiment but you can't experiment in one year or one month it takes a long time so the the experiment around bitcoin is is yet to be completed so we'll find out is it anti-fragile so if the world blows apart will bitcoin go up well the bitcoin purists say yes it's anti-fragile but let me ask you one question one question how come satoshi or whoever it is why is that person never identified himself or themselves or whatever why is that why is that I can't answer that question. Right? Well, like, I mean, you can speculate. Well, let's, anyway, it's something to wonder about. Something to wonder about. Then let's talk about the junior golds. Uh, I have, in the last uh, two months, I've taken positions in junior golds. I've taken positions in, actually, uh, you know, I've got positions in two stocks. Uh, one is a silver stock. It's called BIG, Hercules Silver. And the other is, is, a, is a company called Delta Resources. Uh, why have I done that? Because I feel good about gold, and uh, and and these stocks are uh, low priced; they're not fully priced the way Barrick Gold is. So you know, I have to take positions in gold. Now, are junior gold stocks fragile? Uh, yes, they are, because they could go up and down a lot. So for a guy like me, it's okay because I can handle it. I'm looking for uh, you know what they call a five bagger or an eight bagger, and if it goes down fifty percent. I, it's not going to bother me in the least, uh, but they're fragile. Are they robust? Uh, well, no, they're not an insurance policy. Are they anti-fragile? Yeah, if gold runs because of inflation, they're anti-fragile. It's a possibility. But we can talk about that some more. We can even run models and we can show people how to think about it. But, you know, I'm in the junior gold. That, that's, that's me. I sort of like it. Um, All right. Well, someone answered the question for me. Satoshi withdrew from the project once it was running to allow organic growth of the network and true decentralization to happen. And why did he not define? Why? Why did he? Why did he keep his 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 personality? Why? Why did he go secret? Tell me why he went secret. I'll wait for a response there. 
Yeah. Why did it go secret? When somebody creates something and disappears, uh, it reminds me of Professor Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes. Um, it's, it's, I find that frightening. Reveal who they are. It's, 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 you know, like I understand it's supposed to be decentralized. And by the way, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but I still wonder, you know, it sort of frightens me a bit. But let's, let's go to the Bitcoin versus gold page uh, in a, uh, right now. Okay. Uh, you see that one? Yeah. For those that are tuning in, if you go in the nest, you'll see their slides there. Just refer to those slides. Okay. Now, here's something humorous. You're going to notice that there's the Liberty Gold Coin, American, 1992. And the Bitcoin symbol they use looks very much like the Liberty Gold Coin. That's interesting, right? Then I put a bunch of gold miners, physical gold miners. Then I got some Bitcoin miners. They don't look that different, do they? No. And what I'm implying, you know, we, we, we can always use art to make a point. Pictures worth a thousand words, etc. But there are similarities. So let's go through the chart. And uh, I've studied Bitcoin mathematically, psychologically. I've looked at it very closely in terms of the social theories, the cryptographic theories, the mathematical theories. And, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin is based on two things. It's based on three things, actually. It's based on a mathematical model, number one. It's based on the assumptions so far. You have to mine it or else uh, the technology is not going to work. It's also based on the belief that uh, people will agree to mine it and want to mine it, and it and, and it's not it's the software is pure you can't corrupt it. It's also based on a belief that you can do something with it. You can exchange it into cash or into goods sooner or later. Well, isn't it interesting that all the banks that went down recently are banks that provided U.S. dollars to cryptocurrency institutions. And those are the banks that went down. Those are the banks the governments went after. Those are the banks that, uh, you know, choke point 2.0 was all about. We'll talk about it. But that's sort of interesting, I would say, that it wasn't uh, so far real estate banks. It wasn't J.P. Morgan. It was cryptocurrency banks. Gee, I wonder if that's just a coincidence. Okay. So there's 12 parameters along which I compare Bitcoin and gold. Okay. Number one. Let's look at history. Does gold have a history? Yes, it does. Five to 10,000 years. Does Bitcoin have a history? No, it does not. And to theorize that we think such and such a thing will happen. Well, Karl Marx theorized, Adam Smith theorized, Napoleon theorized. Um, Napoleon, you know, found out his theories are wrong. Uh, Karl Marx, well, a lot of people, some people think they're right. Some people think they're wrong, but a lot of people got killed. There's all different kinds of theories. John Law with, with the, with the, uh, uh, South, with the uh, Mississippi scandal, his theories end up being wrong. There's theories, but history does tend to show what happens, right? So that's interesting. Now let's look at the intrinsic value. Does gold have an intrinsic value? I would say no, except for jewelry. It's got no intrinsic value. Does Bitcoin have an intrinsic value? Can you eat it? Can you sleep in it? Uh, can you listen to it? Play music? Uh, can, can you, I get, can you make clothes with it? No. So I would say in that uh, parameter, gold, Bitcoin are the same. Now they talk about Bitcoin being distributed and gold being distributed. To me, actually gold is more distributed than Bitcoin, but yes, it's distributed. There are thousands of people who keep Bitcoin going and thousands of people keep gold going. So that's the same. Now the question is, is Bitcoin decentralized? 
and his goal decentralized. Well, when Bitcoin is off an exchange, uh, it is decentralized from the perspective is that many nodes unknown to each other keep it going. That's the theory. So far, it seems to have been working. And when it's off an exchange, it's decentralized for sure. So if you run a node, active or passive, and if you pass Bitcoin back and forth, it's decentralized. That's true. But the second you have to convert it into dollars to buy something, um, it's no longer decentralized. Now, if you buy something from somebody else for Bitcoin, if you buy a Tesla for Bitcoin, I guess it's centralized, it's decentralized. But if you buy something from someone and then it doesn't work out and you want to sue them or they didn't give you what you, you expected, it is no longer, it's, it's of no value. The fact that it's decentralized because you can't sue people if the government doesn't support it as a valid transaction. So Bitcoin in practice has, a, has aspects of, of decentralization, but it also has aspects of, de, of, of centralization. So it's not perfectly decentralized. How about gold? Is gold decentralized? Well, frankly, it is substantially decentralized. People will exchange uh, gold coins or even silver coins for assets physically with each other uh, easily, unless the government gets in the way. Because in the 1930s, the government said, if you have any gold, we'll throw you in prison for 10 years and we'll charge you 10000 which in today's currency is like a million dollars. So the government gets in the act, they can make gold centralized. And by the way, they're trying to make Bitcoin centralized too. So apart from government interference, gold is actually, tip, the way it's been working, more decentralized than Bitcoin. Now, if you hold your gold in paper, and your paper depends on banks, and you no longer hold it directly, just like when you hold Bitcoin through a bank or through an exchange, uh, it's no longer decentralized, then your goal is not decentralized either. So that's a more sophisticated way, I think, of looking at it. Any comments or questions, Carl, so far on, on these comparisons? Not for me, but I can see some people, you know... Quite, you know, putting comments and questions in. So, okay, we'll, so let's we'll get through it here, and then we can get to that. We should, yeah, we'll we get through get to that, that and then then we'll hit the uh, what's happening with with Bitcoin and the U.S. government uh, quickly, and then then we'll be done. Uh, now, here is a major, 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 major. I've said that five times. It's a major problem with gold and Bitcoin as a currency. Big problem, massive problem. And here it is. And you don't see this in the literature, by the way, in the Bitcoin literature. Coinbase, Cointelegraph, in the books, in the talks, they don't talk about it. Bitcoin and gold are deflationary currencies. They're not inflationary currencies. And here's the problem. Um, when the economy grows and you need to have more money because gold is of limited supply and Bitcoin is of limited supply, if your economy depends on growth, it will not be supported by Bitcoin, and it will not be supported by gold. And here's the funny thing. The reason being that you can't increase Bitcoin supply, uh, well, you can, but, but basically the model is you can't. You have to change stuff. And you can't increase the gold supply except very, very slowly because it costs so much to mine. Same story with Bitcoin, by the way. So you will have depressions. And economic collapses from time to time with Bitcoin and gold. Does that make any sense, Carl? Or should I try to explain that? Well, more 
some, like I said, you, you're, you're triggering people now because you're talking about Bitcoin. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, someone saying, I'm not understanding the logic based on your argument of why gold is more centralized. You just mentioned that government was throwing people in jail for having gold. No, How is no, that no. not centralized? No, 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 no. People throw, they got thrown in jail in the 1930s. Uh, people have been able to hold gold, you know, since uh, since 1950. So that that was that was that was only for a period of time uh, when you, when the government got into and said you could not hold gold. That was that period of time. But by the way, the government may do the same thing with Bitcoin. So what I'm saying is that when governments are not involved, uh, both Bitcoin and gold can be decentralized. Um, unless you um, have to sue somebody uh, with Bitcoin, uh, you can usually sue and gold is, is legal tender. However, if the government wants to make it non-legal tender, they can do that as well. So as long as the government's not a player, they can both be decentralized. If the government is a player and, and they don't like gold or Bitcoin, and it's been proven once upon a time, like not that long ago, 90 years ago, that they could be a player. And, they, and they're doing the same thing with Bitcoin potentially right now, then uh, it becomes uh, a centralized problem. So it's, it's political. The politicians can interfere with both Bitcoin and gold. So to, to, to make it simple, I'll, I'll just in conclusion, as long as governments don't get involved, both Bitcoin and gold can be decentralized. Yeah. Um, for people that are requesting to speak, that's awesome. But I look at your accounts and it's, they're very suspect. And I, I don't say that based on what your profile picture is. It's just DM me your questions, you know, build a little bit of a rapport and a relationship. And, and uh, yeah, we'd love to have people coming on here speaking and, and having a conversation and, and debating in a healthy way. That's, that's awesome. Um, let me just get to a few things here. Uh, gold and Bitcoin kills the credit debt-based system and only rewards those who are savers. The government needs inflation to debase their debt, which also debases their currency for credit expansion. Yes, yes, and yes. It's a pretty good comment right there. Absolutely. Uh, and, and to that, I'd only add uh, one comment. Um, if you depend on gold and Bitcoin, then everything this gentleman or, or lady said, uh, or significant alternative, uh, is absolutely true. So the question is, but it will also eliminate government. It'll cut down the size of government by probably 95%. Uh, so do we think, do you think that that can happen without a major revolution? That's the question. All right. So someone is asking, I have a question for Sidney. What is the total supply of gold? Total supply in gold is, uh, I don't know, 50,000 kilograms. It's, uh, I think it's under a trillion dollars, right? It's 150,000 kilograms. It's, it's, uh, I think it's under a trillion dollars. I have to work it out, right? Um, but it's under a trillion. It's very small compared to the equity market. It's very small compared to the bond market. It's very small compared to foreign currency and very small compared to the revenue. Uh, so, so really, uh, the gold market is small. Uh, which sort of does demonstrate why uh, gold, if it's the only currency, will result in depressions from time to time. Yeah. 
All right, so someone's saying I'm here uh, to just state that gold also inflates at a little over 1.5% per year. After 2024, Bitcoin will be harder than gold due to the having every four years of insurance rate. I don't know. I'm just reading that. Uh, right that off. statement is correct. Uh, once you've got, I forget the numbers, is it 21 uh, million Bitcoins or somebody, can, somebody will tell me. Uh, at that point, in theory... Bitcoin is deflationary. That is correct. Uh, but yeah. I'll offer the following comment and, and then think about it. And then the person can respond, right? I'd be uh, I'm happy to discuss this, et cetera. Well, and these people I'd like to speak, actually. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're DMing me questions, I know, you know, you're obviously you've got a brain. So uh, you can if I'm reading out your DMs, please, please request to speak if you're comfortable. Go ahead. Sid. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. To, like, I'm not I'm not debating. Uh, you see, what I'm really doing is I'm just sharing. I'm trying to share scientific statements. And what I mean by science, just to be clear, is that if you understand the theory of science, a scientific statement is a statement which can be disproved. Science does not deal with the truth. Science deals with a, a hypothesis. So I'm trying to just state hypotheses. And then the, then the discussion is, it's not a debate, it's just a discussion. You know, what part of hypothesis is true or false? So here's my hypothesis on Bitcoin as a exchange mechanism. If you have a fixed amount of cash and the economy grows, historically, growing economies need more cash. So what happens, what happens with a fixed amount of Bitcoin? Well, here's what the textbook theory says. The textbook theory says that Bitcoin deflates, i.e. its value goes up and then people uh, transpire in smaller and smaller and smaller amounts of Bitcoin, right? So while a pizza used to cost four Bitcoins 50, uh, three years ago, right now a pizza costs 0. 0.0001 Bitcoin. Now, if people who worked for a living were happy to take less Bitcoin every week or every month or every year as the value of Bitcoin goes up, and if businesses were happy to reduce their price as Bitcoin goes up, that would be fine. That would work. But I'll, I'll share with you what history has proven. History has proven that there are massive delays in a deflationary economy, i.e. where money becomes worth more and more. And those delays mean that laborers and workers and service providers do not like to take nominal cuts, like get less Bitcoins or get less dollars. They protest. And businesses don't like to take cuts because they can't tell if those cuts relate to inflation or if those cuts relate to reduced demand. Those lags, historically, for 5,000 years, when there's a limited supply of gold, is what causes depressions. There's a depression of 1835 to 1850 under Andrew Jackson. It's a long story, but I could talk about it at another point in time. Maybe just do a session on that for people who are interested. And there's a depression of 1897 to basically 1914 because of not enough gold. And what happened in the 1890s was farmers were going bankrupt because they didn't have enough currency. And there was a populist movement, just like Trumpy here, uh, with uh, William Jennings Bryan, who said that the government was Grover Cleveland, the, the, the Democrat president, was murdering and destroying and starving farmers because he refused to use silver instead of gold. 
And that shortage of gold caused the Democrat Party to end for 15 years. And when when uh, uh, McKinley got in, he ended up starting wars just to just to increase uh, get the cost of goods down and to, and to get going with colonialism. So there's a, there's a real problem with restricted supply of currency. Um, that's sort of you know there's a thesis there, but but it'd be good to have it would be good to have for people who are interested a separate um, discussion at a point in time, and I'd be happy to have that discussion and provide all the information and just have a, I love it. I'd really enjoy it. And I'd, I'd like to learn as well. And, uh, I'd be open to that for sure. Well, Sid, I, I'm going to, uh, you haven't read off a, a question yet. I'm going to, I'm going to send you one, uh, to your <clears throat> WhatsApp. Did you just get that notification? Uh, let me see uh, here. Uh, Carl, uh, Hey, thanks for your space. It's great listening. Our economic model requires 2.5. The system is, Degenerative using a reductionist extraction resource flows. That's totally true. I completely agree. Uh, in, in terms of mathematics and engineering, I agree. What does a regenerative economic model not based on growth look like? Right, obviously. What does a regenerative economic model not based on growth look like? I'm going to answer that question. Uh, who said that? That, that, is, that is a, this is very, very, very good stuff, okay? What is your definition of money? Uh, Casey, Casey Olson, All right. by the way. Well, person uh, Casey, uh, uh, that's excellent. So uh, can I answer those questions? Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. The system is, is by definition. Now, uh, this person sounds like a profoundly thoughtful person. So either it's a self-taught person or it's someone with a PhD or it's somebody very, very bright and I'm enjoying these questions. This system is by definition degenerative using reductionist extractionist resource flows. Okay, I think what the person is saying is that, um, well, you could be degenerative in two ways. You can be degenerating uh, by, by having miners die, by destroying the environment, or by having a materialistic system where people's souls and spirit degenerates because they're depending on gold. I would agree that gold is degenerative in all those ways, uh, not necessarily when you take the pluses and the minuses, but yes, it's degenerative, I agree. It's a reductionist, extractionist resource flow. Yes, it is. It's you're reducing uh, um, the earth to a, to a lesser function. It's not Mother Earth anymore. You're reducing people to materialism, and you're extracting stuff. You're maybe extracting their souls, and you're extracting material stuff from the ground. I agree with everything the person wrote. What does a regenerative economic model not based on growth look like? All right, you're going to laugh when I tell you what a regenerative economic model looks like. A regenerative economic model looks like the Elliott Wave. <laughs> it goes up, down, up, down, up. Then it goes down, up, down. On a net basis, it, it, every cycle, it moves ahead. It's advancing. It's getting better. And you learn, you grow as you go, which is what Lucretia said. And that's the motto of uh, New Mexico. And, uh, you grow as you go. That's what a regenerative economic model looks like. Now, we know from population biology and just common sense, nothing goes straight up, only straight up. Nothing does. We know, for example, if you bodybuild, you need to rest your body and get sleep, get stronger from that. We know people have to sleep every day to regenerate themselves. That's a long discussion as to why that is. No one knows for sure, but there's different theories. So regeneration means you can sleep. You know, you, you naturally regenerate or you regenerate uh, when you're alert. There's the subconscious mind. There's the conscious mind. There's the superconscious, etc. So a regenerative economic model is basically, I would say, it's a spiritual society 
where people only take material things to the extent that it serves their soul and it serves their fellow man, and a society based on love. That's what a regenerative economic model looks like. Does that answer that question? Okay, next question. Also, what is your definition of money? Okay, my definition of money is that uh, it is something called the numeraire in pure economic theory. In pure economic theory, if you have what's called general equilibrium economics, and if you have engineering uh, costs, and if you have supply and demand, and if you have parade of optimality, this is a course in you know, equilibrium economics, which is mostly baloney, by the way, but that's what it is. In a system like that, you, you, you have an exchange rate between cars, education, the future, the present, apples, all kinds of stuff. Everything has a relative price, right, uh, right Carl? And in theory, in, according to Adam Smith's theory and 19th century economic theory and not Aristotle, but according to modernistic theories and, you know, von Mises and according to human action and Austrian economics, and I could go on and on. Money is just a, an accounting unit where you, where, where you, where you, it's just an accounting unit, right? It's, it's a measuring stick. That's one definition of money. Now, I wish that was the way society treats money. But if you go back to ancient Egypt, where we started, and if you see how money, which was initially physical goods, which, which were uh, consumables, they had to get regenerated. That answers this gentleman or, or lady's question about regeneration. But money eventually becomes something people want, and it's, a, it's because of envy and fear, fear of uh, somebody else killing you for, for what you have or you know, abusing you. And the envy you want that somebody else has, that's why the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, and you shouldn't covet your neighbors, it's whatever. Money has become uh, uh, what, what the spiritualists call an idol. It's idol worship. It becomes something in and of itself. That is not my definition of money personally, but it is where societies tend to get sometime during every hundred-year cycle. Now, what's the definition of inflation? Well, if you look up inflation in the dictionary, inflation just means an increase of something. That's all it means, an increase of something. And inflation in physics, the inflationary model of the universe, means the universe is increasing. So literally, inflation means something is increasing. So if you look at it literally, and this is the Austrian School of Economics, inflation means more money. So if you, oddly enough, find gold all of a sudden, tons and tons of gold, you can mine it real cheap, you're going to have inflation. Why? Because uh, the amount of gold increased. And if the Bitcoin model got changed, if you had Bitcoin 2 or Bitcoin 3, because you needed more cash to have a transacting currency, a transacting currency, not have a depression, you'd have inflation there. So inflation simply means getting bigger. It's all implications, uh, which are, you know, beauties in the eye of the beholder. It's how you look at it. Next question. What is the definition of value? It's a good question. Um, value, uh, I go by, um, um, the, uh, uh, platonic school and I go by the spiritual school. So here are my definitions of value. First of all, uh, value is what, uh, it's a human concept and it's the concept of something you want. If you want something, you value it. If you don't want something, you don't value it. That's all that value is. End of story. Uh, does that answer the questions? Yep. Are you able to uh, see the questions? Uh, well, I don't want to. Uh, am I able to see the? Qu- I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Um, but uh, I don't think I can actually. No, uh, that's because I'm I'm incompetent well, technically. I guess. I have to say though, Bitcoin community is very. Um, they know their history. Someone's saying regarding inflation versus deflation, when the purchasing power of the people decreases over time uh, and as wealth contracts, that also leads to revolution. You're not kidding. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what causes revolution. Uh, nobody is willing to die unless they're starting to die. What about, what about Bitcoin becoming a reserve asset and held by custodians since Bitcoin scales with 100 million Satoshi per Bitcoin? Bitcoin, uh, well, I would say two things. Uh, gold would scale as well, and gold used to scale. Okay, that's why gold could always buy a suit. But guess what? Governments seem to water down gold coins and governments then seem to want to go on paper. And now governments want to go on digital currencies and have their own digital currencies. Somehow governments seem to want to get involved in allocating resources. Find one society over the course of history anywhere where governments did not control cash. Because over the over, so, so yeah, gold scales and Bitcoin scales. Yep, they both scale. But uh, you can't get governments involved. So, you know, is that realistic? Maybe it is. I, I sent you another uh, message. Okay. Actually, if you want to read that out. Okay, the message is executive order 6102 was established because people set the gold after the crash for safety and crushed demand. They later use gold to bail out the national debt. They have little to run to now for safety. Unfortunately, now they have nothing to back the dollar. Uh, okay, Executive Order 6102, which was introduced by uh, Roosevelt, uh, was an appendum introduced by Roosevelt because uh, people were uh, viewing gold as uh, important uh, because uh, cash was scarce. and that's that part is correct. Now, did they use gold to bail out the national debt? No, they did not. No, they did not. Uh, they've never used gold gold to bail out the national debt. They've always used paper to bail out the national debt. That goes back to uh, Andrew Jackson, eighteen thirty-seven. It goes back to Grover Cleveland, and it goes back to uh, Woodrow Wilson. So, um, gold. Has was a currency up until around uh, the 1890s, and it got totally limited by 1913. So um, the only time that gold was able to save the government was uh, in the 1907 collapse, but that ended uh, when Woodrow Wilson started to socialize the economy. Um, so the person ends that a degenerative reductionist extractionist model is, is designed to fail. Well, um, I'll, I'll accept that statement. I don't think it's designed to fail, but I think de facto it does fail. But what I would add is the following. Show me any society that's ever not failed. Uh, you can't find any. Um, now, was part of the mechanism of failure the monetary system? Yes. Was the monetary system the uh, actual cause or was it the final cause? Um, I would say it was the final cause. It wasn't the actual cause. 
the actual cause of society failure is the people don't get along. And why don't the people get along? Because if you study history, they don't get along because people start to want something for nothing. So I think that if someone takes a political economy view of societies and societal cycles, I think that is, uh, that is a, that's a limited perspective in terms of what really runs society. Money is, a, is an indication. If you go to the, <laughs> I'll get religious here. If you go to the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them. And, and one or two of them deals with money, but there's other problems which cause societies to fail. Uh, but for sure, the person that's asked those questions uh, definitely understands monetary economics, no question. Okay. Well, we've been going now for almost two hours. Okay. Um, let, me, let me give a quick you know, three-minute wanna... talk on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies right now. Uh, slide 11. I'll keep it to three minutes. Okay. If you are aware of the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency news, you know, Gensler is going after cryptocurrency. You know, the CFTC is going after cryptocurrency. Elizabeth Warren's going after cryptocurrencies of all types. The Restrict Act is going after cryptocurrency. Senator Mark Warren is going after cryptocurrency. Uh, so there's something going on. U.S. crackdown will push crypto center of gravity to Hong Kong. Calco CEO. There's something going on right now. We know that Brazil, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, Russia are going as quickly as they can off the U.S. dollar. And by the way, they're not going to cryptocurrency. So we know there's a lot of strange stuff going on. And uh, we know that the governments are very interested in cryptocurrency. So that's the challenge. And if you look up Fareed Zakaria, CNN, all he talks about now is how important it is to keep the U.S. dollar strong. There's a whole thing going on right now with currencies, and that's interesting. But the ch- but the chap or the lady who asked those questions about Bitcoin and, and, and currencies, et cetera, is clearly uh, very well thought out, uh, very educated on monetary theory, and I really appreciate those questions. I look forward to speaking to the person uh, you know, uh, when available. I could make myself available through email, whatever, and then I'd be happy to have that discussion. I think it's very important and very interesting. That's it. Think we'll leave it at that. When uh, when you've mentioned uh, Fareed now a few times from CNN, when you're referencing CNN, what is your what is your point behind? Good question. That? I would say CNN is the spokesman for the U.S. government and the spokesman for standard thinking, uh, bridging the Republican and the Democratic Party, not not the Libertarians, and and he's 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 a, he's he's a, he's he's the average uh, government uh, big corporation way of thinking right now and that's why i mention him he's not an extremist uh by any stretch of the imagination but he he's a good signal as to where uh a majority of the north american world is thinking right now that's why i mention him plus my wife likes him got it (laughs) okay um let me see if there's any more stuff here hold on a second here, I'm going to send this one to you, okay. and you can and you can read it off. Then here you okay. go. Okay. And coming now, Bitcoin is inflationary. Uh, the miners need to dump the mine BTC in the market order to pay for running costs. That inflates price and volume. Um, difficult. Okay, is Bitcoin inflationary? 
Okay, it is not inflationary, and I'll describe why that it is in a second. I'll describe why that is. Difficulty rate goes up every every half happening. That's an interesting word. Yeah, yes, it does. In itself, this draws a lot of energy. Yes, it does. Thing true crypto people believe is in is self custody, being your own bank and not dealing with third party custodial holders. All right. Number three is clearly true. True crypto people, or what do they call them? Crypto uh, maximalists, I think. Yep, they believe in self-custody. Well, if you haven't got self-custody, if you're not part of, if you have not a node, uh, you're not a crypto person, right? So, yes, absolutely. Being your own bank and not dealing with third-party custodial holders. Oh, I disagree with that statement. Holding your own cash is not a bank. A bank is an institution or a person who lends out money. That's what a bank is. Uh, but but you're certainly holding your own your own cash, just like if you had rice. And uh, you grew rice or you had meat and those were those were your transaction accounting units. You'd hold it. Yes, uh, that that's a true transactional hold. Uh, but, but it's not a bank. It's not a bank. And by the way, there's a reason banks were formed uh, going back thousands of years ago. Banks are formed to make uh, it possible for people who aren't rich to have capital to become rich. And of course, uh there's something called the uh, the Jubilee in, in biblical uh, laws in the Deuteronomy. And what the Jubilee was that every 50 years, all debts are forgiven. You know what happened to a debt holder in the uh, Egyptian era if he couldn't pay his debts off, Carl? They cut off his genitals. No, no, no. He became a slave. That's what happened. And so, so, so that now... Price and volume. Okay. Um, Bitcoin is deflationary because of a fixed supply. Now, it does cost money to create Bitcoin until until it's no longer half, until it's there. Then you pay your transaction fees. Whether that works or not, who knows? Uh, we have no idea if it's really going to work in practice. It's always nice to work in theory. So so what Bitcoin does, it does uh, mining does not inflate the price of Bitcoin. As, as inflation is thought of, which is a devaluation of currency, what mining does is it, re, it increases the real price of Bitcoin and not the inflated price. Yes, uh, it, when there's a cost of, of mining gold, it's got a real cost, and then it's got a, a monetary uh, transaction value and then an artificial wealth value. Uh, so mining uh, Bitcoin because of the cost um, does increase the real cost of Bitcoin, and that's the cost of the system. Do you have to dump Bitcoin in the market? Well, in theory, if it, um, well, you know what? Um, as the cost of Bitcoin goes up, as you mine more and more, Bitcoin because becomes more valuable. So hypothetically, if mining became more and more expensive, um, Bitcoin starts to become uh, be, have a real cost on the economy. There's a real cost, and that cost is, I'll be humorous here, global warming. You know the way all these guys who grow weed in their apartments and their homes, uh, they can be identified because of all the heat they're giving off, all the energy they're using, and a lot of people steal energy to, to, you know, to make their own weed and stuff. Um, not that I would do that, of course. Um, but um, uh, it, it introduces a real cost. A real cost, and, and, and that's true. Uh, next question. Uh, Bitcoin no longer hold reserves beyond their capital requirements, the zero reserve requirements. 
essentially create money from debt, which then enters the system. Uh, okay, banks no longer hold reserves beyond their capital requirements to zero zero. Essentially, they create money from debt, which then enters the system. Obviously, that's what banks do. If you look at the total monetary supply, uh, that's, 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 that's how, what banks do. Uh, there's about three trillion of bank reserves. There's about three, uh, two or three trillion of, um, of foreign currencies. And over half of, of money supply is, uh, is fractional reserve. Really, there's no such thing as fractional reserve. It's zero reserve banks. That's exactly right. So here's the problem, Carl. Uh, you know, banks create money, right? It's not really governments. It's banks who create money, right? You're aware of that, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the problem. If you have a fixed supply of money, and therefore that means no banks, no banks, a fixed supply of money, you will have depressions and, and collapses from time to time. You have to have deflation all the time. Now, can you imagine, Carl, a situation where every time somebody wants to pay you, they say, I got to pay you less because money is worth more. You'd always be wondering if that's true or not, right? You would resist that. <laughs> yeah. And unions would resist that. Everybody would resist it. That's why you tend to get paper money or watered down currency. It's a problem. Now, the Austrian school uh, believes that uh, who cares? You know, it, it'll self-correct. And right-wing people believe that. I wish, you know, in theory, if, if people were robotic and people were mathematicians and only thought mathematically, that would be true. But, you know, 5,000 years of history tells us as governments get bigger and as they want to become empires, as empires get bigger, they run out, they run out of places they can colonialize. Then they start to, to water down the monetary system. Then they have a revolution and it starts over again. Sort of like fractals, sort of like uh, Elliott Wave Theory. Okay. Well, Sid, it, right now we're hitting the two-hour mark. Um, I gotta say, I, I just absolutely love listening to you because uh, even when you know people, I ask you a certain question about your opinion. You're you're very, you're pretty much teaching people to think for themselves, and regardless of what you think, as you always come from, uh, you know, and your thought process is, I am an investor. It doesn't matter what I think. There's waves. Um, where are we in that pattern? And you always look at both sides. And essentially, that's what will set people free. Um, you know, becoming financially free is something I, I'm a big advocate of, uh, you know, of. I think it's one of the first things you, you need to figure out in your adult life because there's so much more. There's so much more important things to focus your time on other than financial freedom. And once you figure that out, then you can you can start solving maybe more important problems uh, and being a good person, helping your neighbor, yeah. your family, your friends, your family and your friends. Um, so how would you like to sort of first of all, sorry, thanks for, for tuning in, everybody. Um, today, obviously, we had the most uh, engagement a lot of questions. I can't even get to them all, to be honest with you. Um, I would like to see more people speaking. Um, the, the, you know, and I'll hold on a second. We have, uh, a question here. I'll get to this from Jeff. Jeff, I really wanted to see you come in as a speaker today because you're one of the few people that actually private messaged me. Um, I will let people speak hundred percent, but I'd like you to DM me your question first. 
Um, just to make sure, I just want to make sure everyone's on the up and up. It, uh, Sydney is totally cool if you challenge him. He's not. I'm not trying to screen questions here. Like, okay, Sid doesn't want that question. It's not like that at all. Um, I just want to make sure that you know nobody's going to be coming on here just creating issues. Um, Sid, I'm gonna if I could share one thing, uh, look, what yeah. I'm trying to do with these sessions is is have a dialogue, right? And you know, share share articles, share theories and stuff. I'm not selling anything, believe it or not. I'm not I'm not pitching anything, uh, but I'm really enjoying sharing ideas, and I'm trying to learn as well. So here's the last one, Sid. I sent it to you. It's from Jeff Roberts. Jeff, thanks for DMing me, and I did see you request to speak. Um, you know, obviously hit the follow button there, and we'll be doing these more often. And, and we'd love to grow a report with you. But Sid, do you want to read that off? Yeah, then- yeah. The U.S. dollar was backed by gold from 1900 to 1971. Since then, the dollar has been backed by oil. The name is the petrodollar. Uh, okay, I'll comment on that in a sec. Soon, with the CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, what will back them? Okay. Uh, my assertion is that people become literal slaves in the system, so that their digital identity will be tied to their physical body. This is known as uh, biodigital convergence or the singularity. In this system, even our thoughts and memories will not be private. The social credit system will be included. All right. The U.S. dollar was backed by gold uh, from 1900 until 1970. Uh, no, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold from from, 17, nine, from 1776 until uh, 1913. Okay, so it, it ended a long time ago. So statement is somewhat true, but but um, just being more precise. Two, since then the dollar has been backed by oil. The name's the petrodollar. Uh, I would suggest that the U.S. dollar has not not been backed by oil. Uh, you know what I think the U.S. dollar has been backed by? Uh, military might. That's what's been backing the U.S. dollar. Military might and the force of history, and that's what's been backing the dollar. Is there a petrodollar? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a bullet dollar. Dollars have been bulletized since uh, Bretton Woods, since the Americans, since the atom bomb, since World War II. And right now it's sort of peaked out, which is why the Europeans and the Saudis and the Chinese and the Russians have sort of had it. Now, soon with CBDC is what will back them. The same thing that backs the dollar, bullets. Um, how's that for a strong statement? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe the last thing we should talk about is this whole Brinks thing. I mean, when companies are, are basically trading in, in their own currencies, and you know, is that kind of a sign to a World War Three? Okay. Now, when they say people will become literal slaves, okay, that's 1984, that's George Orwell. Um, and here's what I would say, and I'm going to be, uh, <laughs> I'm actually serious when I'm going to say this. That's something to think about. Generally speaking, people are always slaves. Most people. Most people are always slaves. Um, when you depend on a government or a society for your identity, for who you are, into a slave. And like I think Charles Dickens said, people are, are chained by the chains they forge themselves. You, you, you become a slave yourself. And I would suggest Google the allegory of the cave, Plato, and you will see how people are enslaved. And this is, this is one of my major interests here is Plato and the allegory of the cave. The allegory of the cave is the fundamental statement about societies and mythologies. And what the allegory of the cave basically says is that societies are run on myths. What Plato called a false something, if you read book one and two of the Republic. 
All societies are based on stories and myths. Uh, when you push that to the extreme, it's called slavery. Um, and that's what the spiritual man or the spiritual woman or the spiritual person wants to get, get away from. And my personal established philosophy is when you realize that what you call society is, is a mythology, it's just a matrix, and you're you, you're not your attributes, then you're no longer a slave. Uh, now, as far as, uh, as people being controlled by the government, whatever, you know what? Uh, the kings and queens thought they could control people. Uh, the Russians, communists thought they could control people. You know what? Sooner or later, people don't get, don't get controlled. We go through cycles of up, down, up, down, up, down, and then three downs, and then, and then it improves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's happened many times in the past. It will happen in the future. The big thing is to think for yourself, be free in your mind, your soul. And my belief system is that if you think, uh, I'll simplify it with not the right language necessarily. If you think positive, the universe ends up positive. If you think good, the universe ends up being good. If you think bad and fearful, the universe ends up being a fearful place. Um, I believe in the multiverse, in the multiverse, the fractal universe. And that's a whole different discussion. Deep. Very, very deep, Sid. I love it. Uh, Jeff, I did add you as a speaker. If you do have some comments or a question, just take yourself, unmute yourself, Jeff, and ask away. Give you a couple, give you five, ten seconds here to unmute and ask. If not, we'll just move on. Hello, yes. Um, my Well, my question is, is he aware, is the speaker aware of biodigital convergence, the singularity, um, the desire to move toward transhumanism, and um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. I'm aware of all of that, all of it in great detail, yes. Fully aware. Okay. That's it. Okay. Studied it. I studied it in detail. Absolutely. Uh, good question. And uh, it's basically the matrix, right? It's 1984. It's the matrix. It's uh, mysticism. It's, uh, you know, evolution of man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's also the Tower of Babel, by the way. Yes. Well, definitely. I think I think it, it's Satan's desire to... And mimic God and to, uh, you know, to to uh, corrupt humanity, I think, in a lot of ways. So I you. basically agree with everything you said. Well, let's say when it comes to the facts, the factual part of what you're saying, I agree with it 100% what you're saying. In terms of the implications, I have a metaphysical, uh, spiritual uh, perspective on it, uh, which is, you know, it's... Uh, it's a combination of the Bible, the Greeks, Martin Heidegger, Nietzsche, all that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah, we. I followed you, and hopefully, we'll have more discussions like this. Great. That would Thank be you. Fantastic. I really. Is it Jeff? Yes. Jeff, yes. you sound like a great guy. What do you do? What do you study? Or, or who are you? Um, I'm just an engineer by trade, but um, yeah, for the past three years, I've been totally fascinated by all this uh, COVID stuff. And um, a little bit scared as well, but I had no idea about transhumanism or any of that um, two years ago. But yeah, yeah, it's it's really crazy what they're trying to do. It now it's interesting that you're an engineer. Who was the uh, the uh, the geophysicist at Harvard who came up with his uh, own with the end of oil? 
I've just forgotten his name, and he came up with his uh, engineering model for an economic system. Uh, what was his name? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, I know Ray Kurzweil from Google. He He's heavily into this singularity, uh, but I'm not sure exactly who you're talking okay, about. Okay, there was yeah. uh, M, M, okay, M. King Hubbard. Look up M. King Hubbard, okay? Okay, yep. He's an American geoscientist. He's on Wikipedia. Uh, this is a very bright guy who came up uh, with his own economic way. He took input-output analysis and difference equations and uh, you know, linear systems and operations research. And he uh, demonstrated that uh, you could form a complete system uh, as, as an engineer. Okay, uh, He presented that in, at the Senate at sometime in the 1950s. And you can imagine what they did with his thinking. They said, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hubert. <laughs> that was the end of that, right? M. King Hubbard, look him up. Uh, the problem is that people aren't robots. They're creative. And there's no such thing as equilibrium economics. And, uh, you know, there's another book called The Selfish Gene, uh, written by uh, that, uh, that uh, sort of wacky evolutionary biologist. And that's interesting. It says that people aren't important. It's their DNA that's actually using people as a host, right? And then the next theory on top of that is, well, reading information is using DNA as a host, right? So it goes on and on. So who knows? <laughs> but that's good, Jeff. I appreciate it. Great presentation today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I uh, I, I uh, sent Daniel a request to speak. Danny, if you want to unmute yourself, go ahead. If you have a question for Sid. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, Sid, I'm, if you if you could imagine yourself as, I don't know, Speaker of the House, somebody who could set... Uh, who could reform monetary policy, what would you do from that perch? Um, I do. Okay. Uh, it's impossible. Okay. I see no evidence historically that uh, you can, you can reform monetary policy. The only thing you could do um, is the following. If you were, do you know, Plato and the philosopher King. Yes. And I'm quite familiar with allegory of the cave as well. All right. So if you were the philosopher king, or if you were a menhotep, or you were the pharaoh, and everyone treated you as a god, or if you were Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, nobody came to you for uh, the right decision, then what you would do is <laughs> you, you would, uh, you would uh, modulate the money supply in correspondence with economic growth, and uh, you would... Um, have a banking system where no loans were allowed that were uh, more than about uh, 10 years or 15 years, and all loans had to be repaid. Um, that might sort of work. And when King Solomon was king, it worked. And when Solon was the lawgiver, it worked. And when Pericles was the uh, the head honcho in classical Greece before he died during the plague. It worked. But as soon as that great, highly respected leader died, it stopped working. So I don't think there's there's a solution. My personal belief is that society is not meant to work for very long. Societies uh, are basically junior kindergarten or senior, or maybe it's grade one, and you, you come here to, to learn. So it's not surprising that when people come here to learn, and for seven or eighty years, that 
it's a little crazy sometimes because usually JK and SKR. That's I don't think there's no there's no there's no answer to that question. It's not possible. That's my belief based on my study of history. So, um, but is uh, if I'm understanding correctly, um, at what stage of the 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 cycle of civilization would you say we're in right now? Would you say it's comparable to, um, for example, the 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 British Empire previously, and then up for them um, the Dutch? Uh, do you think we're um, the next in line? If I think I think where where uh, Great Britain was around uh, sometime in the 19th century. So I think we got 100 years to go here, but definitely on the decline. Would you agree with that, Daniel? I I mean, it's very interesting. I I tend to be an optimist by nature, but also um, it it depends on what level of abstraction you're having the discussion. It it seems like um, Sid is having the the, the conversation not quite on geological time but on civil, civilizational time. And so it, it seems prudent that we would have this discussion about where we are in the civilizational um, timeline. Oh, okay, if you mean over like, you mean like over 30,000 or 30 million years, you mean from that perspective? No, no, no. I, I, I mean, yeah, is it, your, is it your approach? That's why I said not geological time, so not really in the millions, but from the, the beginning of recorded history. Okay, well, if you look at the millennial cycles, right? I, I mean, the, the look, when you go from uh, stocks trading uh, by minute or sub-minute or by uh, primes or intermediates, you're talking months, months and years, right? But we may be at the end of the super cycle, which is 1729. We're in the submillennial starting the 1492. Next, you go into uh, the millennial starts in 50 AD. I mean, pretty quickly, these fractal cycles um, get big, right? And uh, we, we can't go much before um, uh, zero, or I'm sorry, before the Egyptians. You know, we, we, we don't know much about the pre-Pharaonic times, right? We don't think about them, right? So, so my cycle, when I'm talking about right now and the future moving ahead as we talk about investing and stuff, I'm basically sticking to 100-year cycles, maybe 200-year cycles, and that's it. And then I'm trying to make it realistic to people's trading environments, which is basically uh, three years to their lifetime, 50 years. That's where I'm going to have to stick. But because I know that we're affected by our 100-year, our, our where we are in history, uh, I had to review it, and then I'd be referring to the the, the recordation of this discussion when people talk about. It. I say, look, look at the stuff, read practice book, and you'll see where I'm coming from. So I just want you know I wanted to sort of set it up uh, today and last time. But yeah, I, you know I think we're talking hundred year cycles, right? Like after World War II, people were happy for fifteen years, and then then they weren't happy anymore. After World War One, they were happy for fifteen years, then they weren't happy anymore. After 1897, you know, people seem to be happy for 15 years after a major mess, and then they're not happy anymore. So, you know, <laughs> that's probably where we're going to be hanging out. Got it. Yeah, I was mainly wondering how you saw the like the present realignment with the uh, BRICS nations at, um, with regards to the the dollar um, within this paradigm. I think the dollar is going to be fine for the. Uh, immediately foreseeable future but uh you know look look if uh, if the petrodollar gets killed if all of a sudden they start pricing oil in one um 
you know, if gold really works for Russia and, and, and if the gold commodity base, which is why I like commodities, by the way, it's why, why I like nickel, copper, zinc, lithium, right? Uh, things may change faster than they want. And if you, if you watch CNN, et cetera, if you watch the senators, the congressmen freaking out on the U.S. dollar, you know there's stuff going on, right? So we're, we're in a bit of a revolution here right now. And, and it could all listen. All we need there's two quadrillion of derivatives, right? Those things could blow up anytime. All we need is a blow up, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> and there's a reason that the governments are, are trying to go to a central bank digital currency ASAP, right? Yeah, Sid, are yes. you um, <clears throat> given that news that came out last week, the last few weeks, uh, in regards to other countries, you know, trading off the U.S. dollar? Did you expect when you saw those headlines for the U.S. dollar to sell off more or just nope. sell off in general? And nope. okay, and, and so why is that? Here's why it is, man. Here's why it is. When you study history in high school, this happened, that happened, this war happened. It, it takes a quarter of a page of your history book, right? But in reality, it takes 50 years for those things to happen. Things don't happen quick. Things happen slow. Um. So right now, all around the world, everybody owes debt in U.S. dollars. Every single country owes massive amounts of U.S. dollars. Uh, they, they need U.S. dollars. It's the, it's the reserve currency right now, which is why Russia and China are trying to move away from it and why they're moving slowly. Now, there's a book uh, written, Total Warfare, I have at my office here, written by the Chinese in the 1990s about the 30-year war that, that will be starting. It's, it's a currency war. It's a propaganda war. It's a psychological war. It goes both directions, by the way. And they've been at it for 30 years. These things happen slowly. And I'll just remind you of one story. The sun also rises. They asked Mike Hemingway. They asked Mike, Mike, how did you go bankrupt? And this is really, 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 really important. Mike says, well, slowly at first, and then all of a sudden. So that's how the currency is going to change. Slowly at first, and that could be three years, it could be 10 years, 15 years, but then all of a sudden, just like it did in Germany. Okay, great. Um, I think we're actually going to switch back over now. Is that is that uh, all for you, Daniel, or anything else? I mean, I'm happy, I'm happy to... Uh to stay on the line. Um, I, I thought the recent example of Venezuela's uh, currency collapsing fairly quickly is also uh, is also pertinent. When, when the uh, Chinese and the Saudis and everybody else can get off the currencies uh, and not have, not have to pay back the International Monetary Fund and the U.S. government uh, Finds two quadrillion dollars of swap lines, which is probably I don't know a hundred thousand per person, every man, woman, and child in the world. When those are unwound, uh, then it'll, it'll start to happen. But we've got a serious uh, situation here, where there's seven billion people and everybody owes something to somebody else, and they have no idea who that person is. That's that's the situation we're in right now. We have a we have a heavily financialized, in- intricately undefinable world it's always like that by the way but but that's what's got to get 
you know, uh, modified. And that's why the Chinese and the Russians are taking their time. But that also explains the war in the Ukraine. It also explains what's happening in, in you know, Korea and, you know, but when it finally ends, it happens all of a sudden. You're right. <laughs> all of a sudden. Boom. Daniel, thanks for stepping up today. Really appreciate those questions. And uh, Sid, thanks for answering. We're going to move over now back to Bitcoin. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I just said the speaker in, in, invite. Did you want to come up and uh, take your mic off, Captain? Yeah, I'm right here. Do you uh, hear me loud and clear? Absolutely, yep. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, hanging out, listening. And for Sydney, if, um, if you have any questions, like, regarding Bitcoin and stuff, um, I'd be happy to, you know, give you my side of the, per- the perspective. If you have anything that you'd ask, you know, want to ask the crypto community in a way. Well, I've been involved with it. I've studied it pretty carefully. I mean, uh, I don't have any, you know, I right from the start, five, six years ago, I wasn't the start, but, you know, I was very suspicious of uh, governments getting involved. And that was the thing that guys like Atanopoulos, et cetera, uh, did not talk about, right? They talked about like a monetary system independent of governments. I was very suspicious of it, et cetera. I also knew that a deflationary currency cannot support an economy based on history. And that's fair, you know, and that's fair there deflationary but it is inflationary as a matter of it inflates it's gone from zero coins to what 18 million or however million right now that's out oh yeah but so, it's going to win it's going to like the fa- like the market tells us it's going to win because that's why the price is going up if it was going to go on forever uh i don't think it'd be trading at these high prices which is why so many cryptocurrencies well one of the re- i mean you know if it was going to keep going how, how do you basically correlate the uh the amount of Bitcoin with with the uh, transactional need, you know that's that's the challenge. It it can't it can't scale. Bitcoin won't scale to if you wanted yeah. you know, for like a, a transactional everyday like money you know replacement. It wouldn't it wouldn't scale. It can't scale. The fees would go through the roof and it would get clogged. The network right. would get pumped up, and that's it. Bitcoin is that's why it ended up being more of a store of value for like a gold bug kind of person. Right. Not right. Say, you know not that you are or whatever, but it, yeah, that's kind of where it landed. And it's, uh, the tech is there, you know, it's had inflation bugs, it's had some issues, but it is still Bitcoin that's running is the first thing that has ever done the gains that it has. Like, I mean, crypto is the highest gaining asset known to mankind. Well, uh, it's sure is volatile. In the years, it is very volatile. Yes. Yeah. But there takes a lot of weight to shift Bitcoin price now. I mean, it does swing up maybe 15% or something. It does, you know, over months, it does go, yeah, like 60% up. But that's crypto. Volatile doesn't mean money, though. If the lows are higher than the lows from before on like a heady, on a steady basis, it will keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Time will tell. Um, I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree. I agree. All right. So I see DJ Satoshi has his hand up. I added you as a speaker if you'd like to join in. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for hosting the space. Appreciate the opportunity to speak. And uh, I do apologize. I'll be honest. I did miss the beginning of the show, so I will have to re-listen to the recording. I appreciate you recording it. And uh, it's nice to meet you, Sydney. Um, not very familiar with you and your work, but um very curious to what you just said. You said that a deflationary currency cannot work. Can you please elaborate on why you think that? Sure. 
Um, uh, when people buy and sell stuff in a uh, what they call a non-barter economy, they have to have cash to do that, right? Yep. So yep. as the economy grows, everyone needs a certain amount of cash. And that's why governments typically uh, produce more cash. And that's why when you've had uh, gold-based um, money, uh, you, you get severe depressions when there's not enough gold uh, to, to support cash, to support transactions. You get real serious depressions. So, so, so the only solution is that the, that the volume, that the velocity of money has to increase if the f- amount of money is fixed. Um, but for the velocity of money to increase, it's got to move around from person to person to person very, very, very quickly. It has to scale. And there's no evidence that happens historically over 5,000 years. Matter of fact, the evidence is the opposite. People start to hoard the money, and there's not enough money around. So I, I just base that based on historical evidence. Now, the Austrian school, Juan Mises, bright guy, and all the guys after him, Hayek, uh, they believe a government can, can control um, the money supply properly. So I'll give a quick two-minute story. In the House of Representatives of the United States, there are, I think, 32 busts of the great lawgivers. Moses is in there, and Hammurabi is in there, and all kinds of dudes, uh, Suleiman, etc., one of the busts is the bust of Solon. Solon was the great lawgiver in 500 BC. And he was such a wise man before Pericles that they asked him to rewrite the laws for Athens, and he did it. And then he told the Athenians he wanted to leave Athens for 10 years. He didn't want to stay in Athens anymore. They said, why? You know, you've just written these laws. Now you can, you can, you can help, help us apply the laws. He said, I will start to be lobbied by people who will start to want to bribe me to change the laws in their favor. And I, I don't want to do that because eventually they'll kill me if I don't change to what their needs are, so I'm leaving. That's what happens. Even the wisest man, the wisest controller of currency ends up getting lobbied. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and it fails. Uh, so we know that the velocity of money doesn't go up historically. We know people hoard good money. Good money chases out bad money, uh, Gresham's Law. Uh, we know power corrupts, and we know that stuff doesn't work, so it's a problem. That's why I say that. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I can understand where you're coming from, definitely. Um, I think the difference with something like Bitcoin, though, is that you know Bitcoin is extremely divisible. Um, it's divisible into 100 million units called Satoshis. Yeah. And so you know, the other difference is that Bitcoin can move at the speed of light. With something like the night, the Lightning Network, so you can have transactions like instant instant settlement and thousands and thousands of transactions, actually millions of transactions through the Lightning Network uh, per second. So I, I think the velocity of money would not be a problem because we're seeing that the velocity of money is actually going up in Bitcoin. Um, so have you looked at that at all? I have, and the truth of the matter is, gold is just as divisible. And uh, maybe not in seconds, but it is in days. And all you have to have is a computer system where you simply uh, announced 
uh, what the latest transactions were in the gold price. It would happen instantaneously, just as fast as Bitcoin. The problem with velocity is not uh, currency trading. And what you're describing is a, is a version of currency trading, I think. The problem is people don't like to take cuts in, in what they charge. When they have a menu that says the stake cost, you know, you know, 0.04 Satoshis, and then someone says, well, the Satoshi is up by 0.03, and then they can't quite real, or if it's going to stay, if it's volatile, so it goes up and down, which we know the stuff goes up and down, or, or, if it's, or, if it's, or if it's sustained, they just can't tell. And the fact that so far Bitcoin is so volatile tells us there's an informational problem, probably, possibly, as well as a speculation problem. So basically, uh, uh, velocity is not a technical issue. It's a psychological information issue amongst people. And also it's an envy issue and a fear issue. Um, so I would say if you got rid of fear, if you got rid of envy, if people believed the, the information content of the price of Bitcoin, if they believed the information content and everybody trusted everybody that the information was being manipulated, uh, what you're saying would work. Right. But, you don't have to trust yeah. the people. You have to make them exactly. buy them verify, right? So it's a decentralized exactly. verification system in a way. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is it removes the need for trust. It's a trustless, permissionless system. So. I think we agree here, Sydney and Captain. Thanks for chiming in on that point. I'm, I'm basically saying the same thing as you are, and that is, you know, with Bitcoin, you don't need to trust. Um, you know, if the transaction goes through, you know that it went through. The more confirmations, the more settled it becomes. So there's really no way of charging back or worrying that, oh, you know, did that go through or did it not? Um, whereas with something like gold, you know, it's really hard to verify if that gold is actually in a vault and you mentioned, you know, that you can transact uh, online with gold, uh, but then you're kind of getting back to the same problem we faced um, previously with gold, where, you know, uh, notes were kind of put on reserve. And then um, how about you know, whales? You have, how about whales? You think whales can influence the Bitcoin price or not going to happen? The law of yeah. And so and that's that's a that's a good question, Sydney. And also, you know, you're talking about price a lot. And so I just want to mention that, you know, when you're talking about exchange rate price, of Bitcoin, that's not really how Bitcoiners are really looking at it. Like, yes, right now we are kind of looking at Bitcoin with an exchange rate price because we have dollars to compare it to. But I think the whole point of Bitcoin is to get away from dollars being the unit of account right. and getting to being Satoshi's being the unit of account. So that was kind of my point to you earlier where, you know, one Satoshi is going to be one Satoshi and you can buy like a coffee for one Satoshi. You don't need to worry about what is the exchange rate price today, the purchasing power of one Satoshi will continue to increase. And therefore, it being a deflationary currency is not really a problem. And then really, technically, I think to Captain's point earlier, he was trying to say that Bitcoin is a disinflationary currency, uh, because it does have a, um, a scheduled uh, release of new Bitcoin that keep entering the system. Yeah, so there is a, a certain amount of inflation. It's deflationary. It's deflationary. The value, in theory, the value is supposed to keep going up, right? Yeah, because of the because of the halving cycles. Yeah, but excuse me, sirs, the amount of Bitcoin goes up, right? right? Which makes it yeah, deflationary. Well, but eventually it caps. What it caps, right? Twenty-one million, yeah. something like that. Correct. Yeah. At that yeah, point, so it becomes deflationary. It has to. 
Right. Yes. But but that's in 2140. So we're still looking at 100 plus years. And then even then, you know, you're still going to have like the whole point of it being deflationary being good is that, you know, technology is inherently deflationary. So we want a currency that can keep up with technology. We don't want an issue where, you know, prices continue to go up when really technology makes things easier. Right. Uh, Well, you know what? Uh, Assuming that everybody was rational in the world, assuming that there are no countries and no emperors, um, and assuming that, that everybody is a node and nobody uses central exchange, I agree with what you just said. Exactly. Yeah, and that's where we're heading to, I think. Like all Bitcoiners that really learn about Bitcoin and understand it as more than just an investment and actually see it as like the best form of money that we've ever seen, I think everyone would agree with you that that's where we're but aiming. But it's not money. It's not money. It's, it's, yeah. it's not like it's not transactional money. Well, sure it is. It is a medium of exchange. People use it as a medium of exchange every day. I personally do, and I know many other people do as well. It just hasn't reached being unit of account universally around the world just yet. But as people learn more about it and are willing to accept it globally everywhere, which people do already, it's just we need more adoption. We need more understanding of what it is. And that just takes time and education. And, you know, this might take 40 years. It might take 10 years. Well, it might think, take five you think, years. You think governments are at any risk of outlawing Bitcoin? No. Oh, absolutely. We've seen China try to outlaw it. We've seen other countries outlaw it. But that doesn't work because, you know, governments can simply try to make it more difficult for their citizens to use it and to access it. Right. But they can never actually ban people from using it. I mean, you can even put someone at gunpoint and they can still figure out a way to use it or just hide it from the government. Okay. Uh, do you think you can uh, therefore not never have to pay tax on gains and losses on Bitcoin? Do you think that can be avoided? Yeah. I mean, in a way, but you don't see, that's the whole point. Like, so again, like tax avoidance is, is okay. Technically, right. Uh, it's tax evasion. That's the issue. And I think Bitcoiners are willing to pay taxes if they understand what they're paying for, as long as it's not like hidden taxes, right? Like inflation is simply theft. Whereas, you know, taxation that you agree to because you want to build a road or a school or a hospital, Bitcoiners are perfectly okay with that. Yeah, I I think what you're describing is definitively the theory of Bitcoin. It's it's Doshi's theory uh, in conjunction with, uh, you know, cryptography and trustless systems and presumably eliminating fraud and Having the infinite blockchain, I mean, you're describing all that stuff, and I, I agree that that's those are the hypotheses. I agree. Sydney, may I touch on you? Asked about whales uh, having an effect on price. Yep, yep. The biggest whale is already in, man. Like you got Elon already went in, whatever, and then they said no go on Bitcoin and stuff. They he bought what a billion dollars of the Bitcoin and didn't even move the price, really, right? You yeah. got El Salvador or whatever or whatever making it legal. And that's just basically as a country, probably, in my guess, wanting to be able to claim and pull taxes out of people that use Bitcoin, right? Right. Um, and then, yeah, like, you got Sailor, you got, like, all the big names that have already pumped into Bitcoin, and that's why it's a real heavy thing to move now, right? It's real heavy. So, I mean, there's gains to be made in other places. I won't go down that road, but but Bitcoin has a... It's pretty sturdy rock there. How about enforcing uh, contracts? Uh, what do you do if governments say we're not going to accept Bitcoin as legal tender for contracts? And something well, wrong. 
Well, then I go to the guy with the, with the say, excavator that I want to hire, and I say, hey, I'll pay you with what I feel that I want to barter with. And that's how we do business. Right. And what if you uh, buy a house, you're paying Bitcoin, or you buy a car, or you buy something, and it's flawed? Yep. And I sue the guy, and you go to the court, and the court says, uh, sorry, we don't recognize that. Why wouldn't they recognize a payment, even if it's just signed over, like you get the ownership? That's it. It's like if you paid in cash, would they would they honor? Okay, you got ripped off. Would they honor if you paid in cash? Why would it make a difference? Uh, well, uh, government just has to pay a law that such and such is legal tender, and they've changed the definition. They eliminated gold as legal tender, for example. They have. They have very much changed right. the legal tender. Dollar bill doesn't say. You know, the newer ones don't even say legal tender on them. No, all it is is in God we trust. Yeah, no, I will believe in, you know, and uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, those, those are the, uh, I mean, you know, I raise the questions and you, you, basically you're providing the, uh, uh, the concepts. And uh, all I would finalize is that, you know, time will tell. It's, it's, it's a totally new social construct. Hasn't been done before. And my understanding of history is that until something's been around for quite a while, you, you just don't know. It's been 10 plus years, though, 2009, I guess, yeah. Uh, or, yeah, 14 years. And, and Sydney, yeah. I, I respect you for, for keeping yeah. an open mind. Um, I think that's the key here. And you mentioned it. You said it's a social construct, right? At the end of the day, that's all money really is. It's a belief system. Uh, it, I mean, historically, I mean, people have believed salts and rocks and uh, shells and uh, you know, you name it is money, you know, but at the end of the day, the most acceptable good in the society is what becomes the f- the best form of money. And, you know, that used to be gold. I, I do agree with you there. Um, but that, but that didn't work out so well for 5,000 years as technology advanced, as we entered the industrial age, um, there were issues, right? You mentioned it with depression and all that other issue where, you know, you just needed more velocity of money and people were hoarding the gold and, stealing it and hard to verify, hard to move it. Um, I mean, so many issues with gold, right? Whereas with something like Bitcoin, now that we have it, people are seeing that it's just a better form of money. So I think you're totally right that time will tell. So I would really love to continue these conversations with you anytime. And um, thanks so much for um, being open to it. Fantastic. Yeah, I appreciate it. uh, Yeah, that's great. Yeah, great, great conversation there. And thanks for keeping it uh, clean and respectful. I know sometimes when people don't agree on, on, on things, you know, it can get a little nasty. I'm sure most of us have seen it or heard it, at least in spaces. Uh, if anyone else wants to come up and, and has a question or a statement to have a discussion around, go for it. We've probably got another 15 minutes to go or so. Yeah, I'll drop down, guys. Appreciate that. Thanks, Cindy, and uh, thanks, everybody there. Cheers. Yeah, what what I find very interesting is that people that really understand what money is, we're all in agreement. So, like, that's the beautiful thing about it is we're all technically fighting the same fight. We're all trying to get to a hard, sound money system, I think. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe unless you're talking to Keynesian economics, but, um, you know, Austrians, I think, for the most part. And and really, like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be Keynesian versus Austrians, right? Because we can bring the best of both worlds uh, to fruition. And I think that's what Bitcoin does. Uh, Keynesian economics is a misnomer. What they call Keynesian economics has nothing to do with what Keynes said. (laughs) It's it's been uh, bastardized.
<laughs> yeah, I, I guess can see right someone there. has their hand, their hand up. I can't see the name. I, I'm too far away from the phone right now, but I can go ahead. And I think it's Sphinx. Hi. Hi. Sydney, I just wanted to say this is my second uh, time listening to you. You're probably uh, the most or at least one of the most uh, knowledgeable people I've heard on this platform. So I hope you keep doing this. Um, and DJ Satoshi is someone I've been in his spaces. I respect him a lot. He's very, very knowledgeable about Bitcoin. I think what um, uh, and what he said about trustless is is really spot on. You know, um, you don't need to trust. But what I, what I would say is that there does seem to be a disconnect, though, between Bitcoiners and um, let's just say the rest of the world in the sense that um it seems that uh to to bitcoiners and i i'm not a maximalist but i'm a bitcoiner i i I mean i I believe in bitcoin and i think all of that but i also don't think that it's going to help bitcoin if the dollar goes to zero i don't see how that i I don't i don't get that i don't see complete financial collapse helping also um, you know, D- DJ Satoshi, you know, you, you've bought, you've, I've heard you in your spaces, you buy Bitcoin for freedom and you basically think it's, it's sacrilegious to sell Bitcoin for profit. So you've busted me for saying that in your spaces. And I tried to deny saying it, but you busted me because I did say it. Um, but anyway, I love DJ Satoshi. But um, Sydney, what I wanted to say also was that, you know, the United States has seized quite a bit of Bitcoin. They have. And they, and they, yep, they have. They've dumped it. Uh, they dumped a lot in March, just this yep. last month, and right. they're going to dump a lot more. So, Correct. in a sense, they're they are recognizing it themselves. So, um, you know, what are they going to do after they seize all that they think they can see? Suddenly, say, you know what? No more Bitcoin allowed. I mean, it doesn't. You can't have it both ways, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well. Um... Who's that guy that's in jail for 50 lifetimes? Albrecht? Yeah, Albrecht. Right. Well, um, you know, that's what governments do. But I think that um, what I do think, and I wanted to ask you about this, is to me, if you read the executive orders, it's very clear what the U.S. intends to do. And and I'm wondering. um, What, What do you think they want to do? Uh, CB, uh, CBDC is co- will be coming oh, out. Oh, right, right, absolutely. And, yeah. and in the and then I read the uh, executive order that came out in March of 2022, and yeah. in that in that one, uh, they wrote in the near term, and I went crazy trying to figure out what near term meant to the Treasury Department. And it meant <laughs> it meant uh, uh, about a few months. So we're a year out now and they are very intent on it and it will happen. I'm curious what you think that, that how you think that will affect Bitcoin. Sure. Um, first of all, I don't think. OK, what they're about to do is uh, revolutionary, completely revolutionary. Uh, the dollar right now is a way to control people. Uh, It has been for quite some time, internally and externally. And uh, when you now have smart money, you can track exactly how it moves, and you can either validate or not validate someone's propriety from a legal perspective. That's where they're going. 
And um, if you look at the comments in the Congress and Senate right until Friday, uh, it's pretty interesting. So we're in the middle of a revolution. Now, when the French Revolution started in 1789, it took approximately um, 69 years for it to develop from Louis XIV to Louis XVI. That's how long it took of poverty and distress and whatever. And everybody was a comrade. They were all a citizen. So King Louis became citizen capet, just like in Russia, everyone was a comrade, right? Um, which was sort of a very platonic concept, by the way. He was the inventor of communism, actually. Um, so but when the government now can control everybody or wants to control everybody, they pass the Trading with the Enemy Act, which is exactly what, they, what, what they've uh, just invented in the last two weeks, right? So, um, you know, where's it going to go? Well, who knows? I mean, you know, there's January the 6th. There was Trump getting elected. He was not supposed to win. But when things get tough, weird things happen. I mean, there, you know, you don't happen to Lincoln. You know what happened to McKinley. Uh, you don't happen to Kennedy. I mean, a lot of weird stuff goes on, right? So uh, we'll have to see. The Saudis aren't too happy with the Americans right now, right? The Chinese aren't too happy and neither the Europeans. So, I couldn't possibly predict. At the end of the day, I think mankind advances. If you look at Elliott Wave, there's, you know, you get you get uh, four steps ahead, three steps back, and for every seven steps, you have an improvement of 0.5. So over time, I think I think the world improves with big ups and big downs. And do I, you, is it okay if I digress from Bitcoin for a moment and ask about this silk, new Silk Road that I'm very concerned about? Yep, sure. The Chinese one, you mean? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it seems, uh, I think that a lot of people have been sleeping on this because I believe it was 2014 when she came out with this idea, with this plan. Yep. And initially, I don't know if people realize this, but the plan was initially to connect East Asia to Europe. Now, What's the what it actually is? Middle East, Africa, Iran. Yeah. Right now, what it exactly now what it is actually it is it's directly connecting Russia to India to the Middle East exactly and, exactly. and going completely to bypass Europe. So correct to me, it's like initially the plan was supposed to be to go to get to Europe, and to me it seems like how did we sleep on this? It's Eight years. The, the, the U.S. military is fully aware of us. Right. So I just I'm, I'm thinking of the implications of, of the dollar. With, with, um, so you're not concerned about this then? Well, um, <laughs> from, from what perspective? When you say my concern, tell me from what perspective you mean. That. Well, it seems like we're moving toward a, a commodity. Um, based currency. Totally, totally. Uh, as as Carl will tell you, I've been talking about dirigisma and mercantilism right for from the start, right, Carl? Yeah. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I am. Okay, so we're yeah, moving. That's towards, a fascinating conversation. Yeah, we're moving towards a mercantilist society rapidly, and rapidly means like uh, you know, twenty years, uh, anywhere from three to twenty years. We're definitely moving towards a mercantilist society and a, uh, a multi-hegemonic society. So that's where we're going. And that's why we stand behind commodities. 
here. Yep. That, so yeah. 200 years and we're going to go back to it. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, that's why, were you here when I was going through the, the, the millennial cycle? I was, yes. Well, it's all in there. It's all in there. I mean, those are your cycles. Those are your cycles. It, it, it's happened so many times before. It isn't funny. Empires come, empires go. Right there, there's a story of King Midas. King Midas, this is a, this is a quickie. King Midas was the king of Lydia. Lydia is what Turkey is right now. Okay, he was the richest man in the world. There's a lot of preamble. I'll skip the preamble. So he decided that he wanted to start a war with, with uh, Persia. Right. He, now he wanted to dis- to be the biggest kingdom there was because he was the richest man. He was Elon Musk times three. Now he wanted to be Elon Musk times a thousand. So he went to the Oracle of Delphi and said, "I want to take over Persia." I want to attack Persia. Which, what do you think? The oracle looked at him and said, I have to go to my sulfur cave. And she came back and said, I have the answer. He said, what is it? He says, if you attack Persia, a great empire will be destroyed. He attacked Persia. I'm sure you know what happened next. And the great empire was destroyed. Lydia yeah. was destroyed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and you know, unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, but in the long run, I believe it's all for the good. I personally truly believe if you think positive, you know, not, not, you can't be a dummy and fall for con men but, or con people. But if you think positive, uh, I'm, I think the universe improves. If you think negative, the universe deproves. I think, I think the secular world is, is a myth. It's, you know what a Rorschach test is? I do not. A Rorschach test is, a, is a, uh, the inkblot test, right? It, you take ink, you put in some paper, you fold it, you open it up, you ask somebody what they see, and everyone sees different things. One person sees a witch, somebody else sees a flower, some people sees the devil, somebody sees God. It's, it's you know, people see what they see, right? The world is a, is a Rorschach test. You see, you see what you see, and what you see is what it ends up being. It sounds very much like the Matrix, and that's exactly how I see it. It's the singularity, and everyone has their own singularity, I believe. Another way to look at it is we live in parallel universes or we live in, we each live in our fractals of the big super fractal. And therefore, it's all good. If you're good, it's all good. Pretty deep. I believe it. I, I think I experienced it courtesy of my wife. I learned this from my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyone, anyone else want to want to jump up or follow up there? Uh, yeah, if you don't mind, if you could please, Sydney, elaborate on how you see mercantilism economy working in a day and age like today. Sorry, which economy? Mercantilism. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you a story, okay? Um, and then I'll tell you what the story means, uh, if, if I can take that approach. Please, yeah. Okay, um, 5,000 years ago. In ancient uh, Egypt, uh, people did not write, and they barely spoke. They communicated through feelings and emotions and actions. As a matter of fact, if you look at the biblical Hebrew language, there are there's only one tense in Hebrew. Do you know what that tense is? You know, in English, we got the past tense, the present tense, the future tense, the conditional tense, too perfect, right? In ancient Hebrew, there's only one tense. Do you know what that tense is? I uh, know what is it? It's the present tense. Everything's in the present tense. 
There's no past tense, no future tense. It's all, the Bible's been mistranslated by King James and by the Greeks, okay? Everything was one. Everything was in unity. So the story is that uh, Toth was speaking to the, uh, to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh said, we ha- we, he communicated to him, we have invented something. And he said, what have you invented? He said, we've invented words. We're going to now speak in words, and people will, will be able to communicate better and live better and be richer and transact and share ideas, and everything will evolve quickly. And Toth said, if you invent words, you will destroy human relationships and destroy ideas. People will fall in love with words, and they'll miss reality. That's what Toth said. Um, at that time, the technology was words. Well, you know what? There's a story of uh, Pandora's box. There's a story of Prometheus bound, Prometheus unbound, fire technology. Uh, you know, it's this it's, it's been going on for like 30,000 years, right? And they always think the new technology is going to be new. It's going to change stuff. And you know what? The world never changes. And here's why the world never changes. Because people's, some people's ability to create is always way ahead of technology. Technology is a, ends up being a substitute tool and human mind is always ahead. I don't believe that technology has any impact whatsoever on societies. We've had Nimrod in the Old Testament and uh, you know other uh, tyrants. They come and they go and they, they think they can control everybody with technology or that technology improves life or, you know what, nothing changes. As they say in France, you know, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Uh, that's my that's my hypothesis. <laughs> I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's my hypothesis. I believe anyone that b- believes technology changes anything is uh, has studied enough history. I agree with that, especially when people blame social media for things that are going on or human behaviors. It's like, yeah. Mm. They say the medium is the message. That was Marshall McLuhan, right? Remember him? Marsh medium is the message. Um, I say the message is the medium. It's the other way around. Yeah, I mean, perception is everything. Perception is everything. And by the way, uh, I'll get really theoretical on you. Uh, the name of God in the Hebrew Bible is Jehovah. Jehovah is Y is uh, Y H V H. The Y is the idea. The H is the window. The V is the nail, and the H is the window. As you see, so you shall see. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. What it means is the world ends up being exactly what you think it is. And, you know, technology is just, it's arbitrary. It's a convention. You go from one to the next. Anyway, we're we're getting sort of serious here, but (laughs) there you go. No, it's very interesting what you're saying. I mean, I do agree that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun kind of theory. Uh, so I, I definitely hear what you're saying, and I think it's very interesting. Um, I think um, it's all just different iterations of of itself, right? Um, but but I think the world is really a beautiful and positive place because mm-hmm. uh, humans are usually really you know positive if they want to be, right? Right. And I think all the evil in the world is purely just because of, like you mentioned, right? Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so I think that's what we're all kind of striving for here is just to decentralize the world a little bit more so that we can remove the absoluteness and the corruption right because we just all know that we can all be sovereign individuals and 
when we're all sovereign, then we can all be good again because then no one has power over another. Everyone has only power over themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that's why in these sessions, and, you know, we're probably going to be, you know, more more classically financial moving forward. That's why I like to stress um, different time frames, you know, from the short to the intergenerational when you look at assets because that way people can pick and choose according to their need. And that's why I like to look at the nature of different assets in terms of uh, real risk, which which is value-based. Somebody asked, what does value mean, right? Maybe it's one of you guys. So that's that's why we sort of take the approach. So I'm trying to get away from being a talking head or being a being a you know a marketing guy. Trying to pitch the specific model. That's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, like we got with the, there's a couple of people that said, well, you know, why don't you guys discuss uh, Donald Trump's indictment? And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't know. It's, to me, that's like political drama, right? When these the, we're talking about more of the larger things here, uh, especially when uh, you know commodities right i mean we cover finance if anyone doesn't think that you know commodities look good moving forward from here i would love to hear that conversation i love to debate that um respectfully this is definitely going on to our third hour and in two minutes i'm going to wrap it up here um but i just wanted to say thank you to everybody, especially the Bitcoin community coming in here today, um, asking some questions, giving some insights in a respectful way. Like Again, I know these spaces can go offside sometimes, and we're not trying to have that type of environment. Um, and it's just been a fantastic conversation today. So thank you very much. Um, go ahead, uh, Sphinx there, if you, want, oh, if you have a sorry. last word. You know, I just, I just wanted to add about the question about how um, mercantilism would would show up in today's society. I just think it would it would um, manifest in more sort of protectionist trade policies. Um, I don't know about the like more colonialization or imperialism because I don't know what else we can get really in that sense. But also more date intervention. I would say in the economy. I would expect. Totally. Totally. And then also, yeah, also I would expect a more limited role for free markets. And uh, I, I would expect governments to focus on accumulating precious metals, which that I can definitely see. Yeah, there's, there's a guy called Russell Napier, uh, N-A-P-I-E-R, Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L. Uh, he is, uh, you, you can Google him, look up his articles. He wrote a book called Anatomy of the Bear. He runs a uh, economic institute uh, in Scotland, and uh, he describes uh, the new mercantilism and the new government control and the impact on the cost of capital brilliantly. And he addresses everything that you just uh, talked about in terms of the new mercantilism. Russell Napier, N-A-P-I-E-R, R-U-S-S-E-L is his first name, R-U-S-S-E-L-L. He's terrific. He's a wonderful man. All right. Well, um, let's wrap it up here. Thanks again. Uh, we'll be, Sid and I will be off next Sunday because uh, we're both traveling, but we will be back the week after, maybe even before Sunday. And we're not going to be running four spaces a day. We're, it's not kind of what we're, we're doing here. Follow us if you want to have some high-level conversations. We'll get into the, the nitty-gritty stuff of, of certain um, you know, commodities. We like uranium. We'll talk about Bitcoin, gold, and silver. And obviously, when there's things that happen in the in the economy and markets and, and even some big po- political things, sure, we're going to discuss those things. Everything ties in. Um, but Sid is really taking, taking his time to discuss history and how those and how history kind of has, has, plays a big role on where we are today and where we're headed. 
So we'll leave it there. Sid, final word. Go for it. Uh, look, I really enjoy this. I enjoyed the conversation and, uh, I'm having fun and I love to learn. And it's great to interact with people who, uh, who can learn and teach, you know, I like to be, I like to, I got to learn and, and, uh, I truly appreciate the concepts behind Bitcoin. I appreciate the mathematics, the cryptography, the social constructs. I have a huge amount of respect for, for that movement. Huge amount. Awesome. All right, everyone. Uh, love your neighbor. We'll see you again, and uh, take care. Thanks a lot.